It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2022, and this is the People's Podcast. This is Steak for Breakfast. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blowtorches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off. Also brought to you by Stay Ready Gear. They're at stayreadygear.com and on Instagram, stayreadygearusa. Holsters, custom kydex, mag carriers, tourniquet carriers, on and off-duty gear, hot melted plastic made just for you. Need something custom? They got you covered. Use the code STEAK for 5% off. Don't get ready. Stay ready. The Pillow King of Minnesota and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family still experiencing BOGO extravaganza. Buy one, get one free. Giza Dream Sheets, Giza Elegance Pillows, My Towels, six-piece sets, and a whole bunch more. In addition to that, for all the other great stuff they have at the MyPillow store, and a promo code to take a checkout for big, big savings up to 66% off. Head over to the website, mypillow.com forward slash steak, or you can talk to a qualified pillow representative, 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear and all things related. The world's most technologically advanced in-studio recording equipment can be found at Odyssey. Whether you're gaming, potting, clearing my throat, oh, get those ears taken care of and done upright. Odyssey.com is the website. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Mike down at West Coast Survival Arms has been servicing Southern California for over a decade. If you're out of state and into the tradesies, he's a licensed FFL. He's got a five-star rating as well. Newly redesigned, easy-to-use website, westcoastsurvivalarms.com. He's on Facebook Messenger and via the telephone, 619-870-6992. Steak for breakfast, Backs the Blue. We love our first responders, and they're always working hard. While they're off-duty, they're probably wearing gear from Mediocre Medic. Sweatshirts? T-shirts, flip-flops, fanny packs, and more. Stickers and patches for while they're on the job. Plus Pretty Fire IG. Check them out, MediocreMedic.com. And last, but certainly not least, home of the Zero Fucks Duck. The top tier of tactical flair. Can be found at DumpBox.us. Don't know? Go ask Mark Joe Friday. Find him on Facebook. Find him on Instagram. Friends, don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Steak for Podcast Breakfast or via the website at SteakforBreakfastPodcast.com. There you'll find a link tree that'll take you to all our social medias, the website, our newest Substack, the Telegram, and more. And on that note, to all of our friends joining us today on the Patriot Podcast Network via the Roku app, from the Twitterverse, Instagram, Discord, and now via our verified account on True Social. Welcome, Tuesday edition, Steak for Breakfast Podcast, episode one thirty-seven. I'm Roan. Noah's here. Yo. Antoinette's going to join us a little bit later. We're going to bring you some news. We're going to bring you an America First interview with uh, Nevada 2 candidate Danny Karkanian. And we're going to sit down with uh, Chris Barron and Brent Hamachek, two of the five guys, not the burgers, who run human events. Uh, now I'm hungry. We've got a great show lined up, so uh, 
get ready to rock and roll. But first, he's done a lot. He is the man behind the National Post, famous author, great friend of Steak for Breakfast. He's back again, Mr. Raheem Kassam. Thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Listen, I am now told that in my absence, you guys have become the most important show to listen to. And, you know, I don't know whether to put it down to the fact that you've got all these great guests who come on now because you do such a great show. Or you have to have all these great guests on now because I come on so little that you're just trying to fill this void that I've left in your lives. (laughs) See, I, I was prepared for something like that, and believe it or not, I have a, t- a two-way answer to combat that narrative that you're promoting right now. Allow me to retort. First one is, yes, we need more of you, but we understand how busy you are. However, I'll admit it to our listening audience, I beg Raheem to come on all the time. He's just a, he's a really busy guy. Like yeah. he, He's not a guy that's like, I'm busy, I can't come on, and then like you just see him tweeting all night. Yes, he's still tweeting all night, but he's... In one city, he's on an airplane, he's at a restaurant, he's listening to some music, he's out there dropping four or five editorials at once, and uh, yeah, I could definitely say you're busy, and then in regards to us being like a great show or anything like that, we're just doing the best we can. So, it's been... Uh, well, everybody, everybody, everybody's always singing your praises to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm really not just blowing smoke when I say that, so I think it is a, a testament to you guys. Yeah, we've been working really hard at it, we're recording... Uh, five days this week to kind of stack up our shows for next week but it is what it is we're, we're really glad and thankful to have you i do understand in, in reality how busy you are and you've got a ton of stuff going on so it's hopefully we're going to have a nice little conversation here and our listenership does always appreciate when you come on you can have me for as long as you want today i've cleared the decks for this so because i know i've been so tardy and, and and unreliable lately but again, to come back to the point, I'm so glad that, that you guys are stepping into this space in such a big way. I'm so glad like Jack Posobiec is stepping into you know his podcast and his that space in such a big way. Because to be honest with you, I've been, I mean, you know, some people do it all, all their lives, 40, 50 years at the microphone. I've been doing it since about 2013, and I am sick to death of it. Mm. I am sick of my own voice. I'm sick of saying the same things over and over again and then we end up with candidates like dr oz you know it's this this is it's just becoming an awful hamster wheel for me which is why to answer a question that i keep getting asked uh that i don't do so much broadcast anymore it's so tiresome it's tiresome to say so you know more power to you guys because you're doing it so i don't have to do it i mean you know how hard it is to wade through some of these narratives it's almost like just to go out and do like any kind of a political show with an angle on it. You know, we, we like to be an America first show. We, we supported Trump era policies and we want to see the country get back on the right track. But just to get to that narrative at the end of the week, when you have to do all the research to put two shows together in the meantime, it's like a huge black pill. Cause you're like going through the reality and then trying to find the bright side of it, which usually there isn't unless, you know, occasionally you'll have a, a Senator or a congressperson or, or Peter Ducey dunking on somebody from the white house. But we know at the end of the day, that's pretty much all for show anyways. Like, yes, it's uh, for shock value. Everybody kind of laughs at the stuff that happens, but then they all go back to doing their horrible jobs. Look, <laughs> mental exhaustion is real. Emotional exhaustion is real. Physical exhaustion is real. You know, people have all sorts of different types of job in, in jobs in the world. And I'm not claiming that sitting in front of a microphone is one of the hardest in the world. What I'm what I'm also what I'm saying is, you know, that feeling you get like this. I'm talking directly to the audience here, so don't mind me. That feel I've just taken over hosting now. The feeling you get 
when oh. you turn the television channel over, right? You, you know, you, you've got, you know, CNN's on there or Fox News is on there or something, and you just get so agonizingly irate about it that you want to throw the television remote at the television. And that's how, you know, political broadcasters feel just about every turn of the page. Right. Just about every bit of research we do, just about every little bit of news we uncover. We have that very same, if not 10x feeling. So, you know, it's um, and especially now. Right. I keep talking about I don't know if you've seen me trying trying to coin this phrase, the leadership. Mm. Right. The, the McDaniel McCarthy McConnell Republican Party leadership. And it just it just makes me want to throttle myself. You know, it's just so agonizingly, brutally out of step with everything that everybody at the grassroots level has been fighting for for the last decade plus. I, you know, I don't understand why, why you guys tolerate this. No, and, and you make an excellent point there. It's actually one of the first things I want to talk about. You, you teased the midterm, so let's get into that, and we can kind of spin it into that whole McLeadership narrative. Um, actually, we, we, could, we like to do tradesies on this show, so we coined the axis of oil because we thought the axis of evil was pretty, you know, repetitive when talking about... Uh, how Joe Biden was kind of shifting from getting his oil from Iran and, and Russia, and so he might just get it from Venezuela instead. So we, we thought access of oil was, was kind of clever. I do like that McLeadership, though, so f- feel free to use that one whenever you want because we're going to use the, the one you just gave us. All right. That's a, that's a fair trade. I like it. Um, so in portion, these midterms are starting to turn into the establishment versus MAGA versus MAGA. It seems like MAGA is breaking off into two different sects, and I know because I've personally experienced some of it. Um, we've had both ends of it on, kind of like the ultra-dark MAGA wing. Like, you're probably pretty confident in that sect. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've had on a lot of the establishment candidates who just go out there, and uh, or, or even some of the pundits, you know, people who are really close to Donald Trump. They'll come on the show, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about things and have banter the same way we do with you, but instead of giving, like, kind of an educated opinion, they'll just go... Checkmark Alley, straight down the row. Got to secure the border. Got to get the economy on track. In energy independence. We know all these things, but let, let's have a discussion. Which I think. Yeah, hold on. Breaking news: We must secure the border. You know? <laughs> Imagine that. Wait, it's unsecured. Yeah. I thought. Yeah, I thought we had complete <laughs> operational control, or, or that's what Alejandro Mayorkas told us to. And fully staffed. Oh, nice. Imagine that. <laughs> Laughs in $30,000 worth of overtime. Yep. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, there are two widening sects of MAGA right now, and it, it seems like they're kind of butting heads because from people that I talked to on the inside at Trump World, they said pundits that are out there going against endorsements, which, listen, you have to have discussion. I think that's kind of been one of the biggest things I, I wish more people harped on uh, instead of just going out and slamming everybody. But some of them are slammable, but you, you should be able to have a discussion about red flags, positive, negatives, stuff like that. But, you know, it, it, it seems like to be a growing rift, and it's, it's kind of alarming thinking that just like maybe four or five weeks ago, there was a lot more unity, at least overtly, uh, going into these midterms. Yes. Um, look, I, I, I don't think, just to come back on a phrase you used there, I, I, I slam everybody as often as possible mm-hmm. because everybody needs to be slammed every so often. And it's, you know, there's enough, there's enough back patting on all sides. We actually need ombudsmen as well who are willing to kind of be like, hold on a minute, though. This isn't necessarily the right thing to do. And, and I've seen and their remonstrations about the Trump endorsements and Dr. Oz and Morgan Otagas and all of this. And I've heard them. I've heard them out. I, I have friends who 
supported Morgan or Targets, for instance, in Tennessee's fifth. Nothing close to being a MAGA-style candidate. Um, but, you know, and I apply it to myself as well. Like, we all need, we all need to be slammed a little bit here or there just to remind us uh, about our responsibilities. And our responsibilities are not just to a po- political party candidate or a politician or an anti-politician or a, or, or, or a leadership figure or whatever, right? They, there are some, you know, we, we owe them something for, for their time and their presence. We need them. We want them. We like them, et cetera, et cetera. That's a, this is a trade. It's a compromise situation. And what I'll say is that Donald Trump is not doing an unclever thing with, with what he's doing at the moment. He is attempting to hold together a very, very loosely formed coalition of people that, that he managed to convince over different issues over his presidency. Because so, even, even moderate Republicans came on board once they realized that they too were getting things that they cared about, whether it was judicial appointments, tax cuts, whatever it was during the Trump administration. And, you know, my side of the political football in all of this will argue that he spent too much time actually appealing to those moderates and not enough time, you know, delivering on what the base wanted, his base wanted. But at the same time, from his perspective, if we're being, if we're trying to be, um, dispassionate about this analysis, which is very difficult. But if we're trying to do that, uh, then we have to accept that, that he's not doing an unclever thing here. The problem is, once again, just like during the administration, the base feels like the side that needs more of an appeal to stay on board will then therefore necessarily and demonstrably get more in exchange for their compromise. And that and that is really the sticking point between these sides at the moment, right? In In... We had this during Brexit. I I probably don't need to go over the particulars of that again. But Brexit was a loosely cobbled together coalition of voters Mm -hmm. um, who we appealed to on all different levels. Some cared about the National Health Service. Some cared about uh, national sovereignty. Some cared about mass migration. Some cared about localism and how decision making is taken in the United Kingdom. We, We cobbled that coalition together. And as an example of how quickly those coalitions can fall apart, after Brexit, after 2016, um, the UK Independence Party, which was really the leading party of the Brexit movement in the United Kingdom, effectively fell apart. And now in the UK, you have the Reform Party, the Reclaim Party, the Heritage Party, the Poor Britain Party, the UK Independence Party, and, you know, to some extent on the political right, the Conservative Party. You have six different parties now representing a cause uh, or, co- or set of causes that were represented really by one and a half parties just a few years ago. And, and Americans often talk about how they don't have a, a you know, multi-party system, but you kind of do. You know, it may not be official and it may not be institutional, but the Republican Party isn't one cohesive no. political party that pulls in the same direction all the time. And it's just a silly thing to pretend that that is ever going to be the case. Um, Democrats uh, uh, understand this better and understand it about the right better. And, and you know, uh, aside their ideology it makes strategic sense for Democrats to centralize decision-making processes under, you know, Arabella Partners, uh, you know, through the Amalgamated Bank and, and under the DNC. And, and they have understood something uh, far, far more important strategically for their side to the point where they actually, as you see nowadays, they don't even believe they have to govern well. They don't believe that they have to be moral arbiters, moral actors. And they don't believe, this is a critical thing, they don't believe it's the institutions that need reform anymore. 
the Democrat Party and the political establishment has now decided that it's you that needs to reform. Yep. Right. The, the, the public, the public is out of step with the government, not the government is out of step with the public. And, and that that is your first and best, um, you know, marker for understanding how a tyranny comes into being. It's when the government decides the problem rests with you, not with them. Do you see this heading towards some sort of a meet in the middle or workable solution as we go through this midterm season? Because if there's not a little bit less of what's been going on lately online, and I'm not talking about critiquing, I'm just talking about like the obvious split that you're starting to see. Um, it's only a matter of time. Like I, I feel if we continue to go down this path, Trump is going to start calling out people in the party that he shouldn't be calling out when he should be focusing on the McConnells and then the people on the left and stuff like that. The establishment Republicans, the rhinos who, who went in and screwed him over during his presidency. And he's going to start going after those people who kind of fit into that gray area, who feel like they are America first. They do support president Trump. They love his policies. Like you said, they enjoyed some of the spoils of his presidency when he was able to get stuff done, but now they're feeling disenfranchised with things like, let's just say Dr. Oz, we'll use him as an example right now. Yeah, so Trump is Trump is really here playing the better the devil you know strategy with the with the establishment Republicans. His his messaging to them, the undercurrent of, of, of everything that he's doing is yes, you don't necessarily trust me in a uh, you know in a, in a in a mercurial sense. You think that I might be driven to, to flight to fancy. He he kind of he kind of not just admits that, but, but but leans into that. But at the same time, he's signaling to them, there are things that we can agree on, and there are people that we can agree on, and there are compromises we can agree on, and you know me by this point in time, and you know my advisors, and you know my network, and you know how to get access to me, and so on and so forth. Um, it, would be a, it would be a lie to, to say that Trump isn't worried about being primaried, and isn't worried about being primaried by, specifically by Ron DeSantis. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of the kind of decisions that you see him and his people taking uh, that we that we question and that we go, wow, does he have really bad instincts? Actually, you know, it's not bad instincts. It's it's, it's strategic. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, and, it, and it's not unclever. No, I mean, you, you do make a whole lot of sense. He does have to kind of fight a whole bunch of different battles on different levels, not just against who he's facing in the primaries with these candidates that he's endorsing and going out and having rallies for and supporting, but it's also appeasing certain levels of the party to make sure that when it does come time for that presidential primary season uh, that, you know, he's saying, hey, remember, we always stuck to the base. We always stuck to the MAGA principles. We want to save America. We want to do this. We have unfinished business. Remember, 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 and it seems like, you know, it does make a whole lot of sense there. It's kind of going to be, I, I don't know, I, I, that's this whole Pennsylvania thing. Like, from the beginning, I've been someone who's always said this falls on solely on Donald Trump. And even if they would have tried a little bit harder, the establishment GOP to find somebody to replace Sean Parnell when he got out of that race, they never did. There was a huge void. It was filled with what we have now. And, you know, if, if the recount goes the way that it's looking, it, it, apparently Dr. Oz is going to be the, the Senate nominee there for the Republican Party. So I guess to, to be uh, announced, but uh, we'll have to see what happens there. I, I think the next big test in regards to the midterms is, is next week. We have... You know, Arkansas and Alabama, but I think everybody's pretty much focused on Georgia as like the huge litmus test for Donald Trump coming up here. Uh, he put all of his money into David Perdue. I used to have a, a lot more reservations about David Perdue in regards to like being a fighter and talking, you know, 
things that cater to the base. But we had him on here a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, w- I was changed a little bit. He, he he definitely got into several of the things he's working on that he wants to change. He he made a case for himself, and I liked it. It doesn't make me 100% feel comfortable with him, but at, at the same time, I think that, uh, you know, Donald Trump put his money in David Perdue because of his senatorial campaigns that he had ran. He had had like a statewide apparatus set up, money, ground game. You know, he's got the whole phone thing locked down, and uh, it was probably the safest choice. And, and this is kind of where we're at now. How do you see that race shaping up? To be honest with you, I haven't been following it at all. I, I don't have a view on that race, and I, but, but I do have a view on, you know, the what, exactly what you just said, which is the it's this it's this idea of the 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 compromise and and i want people to understand this and i and i especially want people to understand that this isn't me necessarily even excusing it right this is just this is dispassionate analysis uh i don't particularly like it you know i i definitely don't like dr oz i definitely don't like uh, dave mccormick mm-hmm. um but this is this is not just about what you're talking about now is is you know what we deem quote unquote electability right the i the the um chance of you winning in the general the chance of you beating your uh, p- partisan opponent out you know after the primary and this is what trump has to trust unfortunately has to trust other people on because donald trump himself is not going through the data he's not going through the county level data he's not going through the demographic data he's not going through the uh, you know gerrymandering and and changing of, of of seats and 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 mapping and all of that kind of stuff himself and he relies on his team to do it. Now, you know, uh, politics is a very, and I, I, I'm not even trying, I know you guys know this, but I, I'm, I'm trying to talk to an audience who kind of scratches their heads every so often and says, you know, often asks the question, well, why is he doing this? Why is this happening? And again, it's not excusing it, but it is explaining it. Um, politics is an industry where you don't necessarily just work for one person at right. any given time if you work in campaigns. You may work for for a whole raft of candidates. You may work for a consultancy. You may be a consultant to a consultancy that works for several candidates. You know, there are all manner of different ways that people make money in politics. Um, because often, oftentimes, if you work for one candidate, you're not making very much money and you're living in a studio apartment and you're, you know, your life and, and you're living in a city and it's expensive and, and, and it's not fun at all. So what people do is they stack up, they stack up the candidates. And then, so if you're working for one candidate, you want to get your other candidate to endorse and, and vice versa. And so a lot of what people in Trump world do is they represent other candidates. They get paid to represent those candidates, but they also work for the wider Trump organization or what I call MAGA Inc. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so it pays them to have their candidates endorsed either by Trump or Trump world or something like that. So people need to understand that. And it may sound seedy and dirty and, and, and awful. And it probably is all of those things. Um, but, but, you know, unless, until and unless you reform the, that, that structure of the way your politics works, that's going to be the case. Um, because it's, it's almost impossible to make a decent living, you know, in, in somewhere like Washington, D.C., if you don't do something like that as a campaigns person. So, you know, that that really is, is, you know, multifaceted and multi-track compromises that the president and his team make in all of these races. And I, I you know, again, I don't know Purdue. I don't follow, I haven't followed that race at all, um, but I can see it happening elsewhere as well. The the problem is, I think you should be doing it at a lower level than Trump is doing it. If 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 you believe that he has to do these things and he does clearly then I don't think you should be doing it at a Senate or a gubernatorial level. I think you can do it in House races, and I definitely think you can do it at state elections 
uh, around the country. But empowering people like Oz to represent people that he's never spent a second of time around in his life, uh, I think sends sends. Firstly, it sends the wrong message to the base. Secondly, it sends the wrong message to the moderates about what they have to do in order to find themselves within the MAGA tent. And thirdly, it sends the wrong message to the public. Yeah. You know, I thought we, I thought this side stood for something. You know, all of this stuff that Elon Musk is talking about at the moment, right? Voting Republican and why. And then this morning he sent a tweet about, uh, you know, how there needs to be a moderate party in the middle for, for people who don't want either extreme of Democrat or Republican, um, which is which is by and large a nonsense, but he's just trying to, he's trying to placate the people who tell him he's going too far to the right. Um, you know, and at the same time, we're asking the public to, to, to follow that mentality and say, yeah, you should be looking at shifting your vote from Democrat to Republican. But, you know, the Republican Party isn't quite, you know, hasn't quite got it, you know what, together. Uh, it's all over the place, all over the map. The endorsements don't make sense. There's no consistency to it. What is the party platform, you know? All of this guy, you know, they've got a Senate candidate in Pennsylvania who was endorsing transgenderism. Wait a minute, I thought this party stood against that. And 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 so, you know, inconsistency is the hardest thing to sell in politics. If your candidate is inconsistent, they are inauthentic, you've got a real problem on your hands. And, and we do have that problem on but you know, it's a, it's bubbling beneath the surface, but it's a problem we're about to have on our hands. Yeah. And it seems like it's starting to bubble over as, as like we've all seen the last couple of weeks, especially a lot of the major pundits and influencers out there online who have massive reach and, and really can do anything from like end the government's disinformation board to possibly derail a congressional, senatorial or gubernatorial campaign, uh, go into the other direction on some of these picks. And we, we got to find a way to kind of, you know, circle back to the middle. Um, Raheem, I saw you guys put out an amazing article this week. I read it. You had a lot of just about everybody that was in there. Plus, as you know, you guys mentioned, I saw J.D. Vance, uh, Jake Beckett, and uh, you had Joe Kent in there. You know, we've also had mm-hmm. on Eric Greitens, Max Miller, uh, a lot of our, our mm-hmm. great friend veterans. And it's talking about this is another thing in regards to America first versus the establishment, the warriors versus warmonger narrative, as we've seen since the start of the Russia-Ukraine minor incursion. Mm. I guess we're still there. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we, we look at it in border walls. And, and when that bill is signed into uh, fruition tomorrow, uh, where we're going to send 40 billion more dollars over to Ukraine into like a black hole of going nowhere, um, we'll be at 12.5 border walls that we could have built in, in about 90 days that we, that we've sent money over to Ukraine. So yeah. Did you come up with that measurement by the way? I did. I like that a lot. You should, you should, you should post that every day. You know, that is a, that is a fantastic way of communicating it to the public. You know, we are, how many border walls are we in? 12.5. 12.5 border walls. Wow. Or one really tall one. We're going to see if we can get all, <laughs> all the way around the planet. <laughs> But, yeah, it, 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 it's crazy. But, you know, you do have this young – well, they're not all young. I mean, J.D. Vance is a little bit older. Eric Greitens is, has been in the game forever. But Joe Kent, uh, Jake Beckett, Max Miller, you know, th- these are some young guys who, who served during wartime. They did t- multiple tours in theater. Some of them were combat veterans. I mean, we all know Joe Kent's probably killed so many different people seven ways to Sunday uh, between, you know, him, him being like a special operator and then transitioning over to the CIA as a commando. Uh, but, you know, same thing with Greitens. 
these guys, they know what's up. They've seen what happens when you're in country, when you're doing special operations for this country, and, and, and you're seeing just money come out of Washington, D.C. Half of it's a revolving door that goes right back into their own pockets, but the other half just goes into places like, I mean, we're literally funding their politicians like retirement funds with some of the appropriations in this bill because we broke it down on the show last week, in addition to a whole bunch of other stuff. And uh, only a million of that $40 billion is going to go to the inspector general to provide oversight. So... You have this young crop of guys out there who are kind of calling it like it is and saying, listen, this is, number one, absolute bullshit. Number two, does nothing to service the American people for, especially in the wrong direction the country's going right now. And I think you guys pretty much hit it, uh, you know, head on how these new crop of, of candidates that are coming up and hopefully getting in, in in January will be bringing a little bit more sensibility to the uh, matters regarding this stuff. You won't have to see just like Rand Paul grandstanding or Josh Hawley grandstanding or Ted Cruz somberly going up to the podium to do one of his like big inhale and then talk about how sad he is that the American people are getting screwed over by this. We're going to have like actual fighters going in there to do something about it. Yes, I agree. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know what to, say, what to add to that. I think, uh, you know, that was a, an article that Steve Cortez wrote for us last week. I think you nailed it in, in the, in the prescription of it. And um, I think, I think it was inevitable, wasn't it? You were going to, you were always going to see on the back of these um, forever wars, a, a pissed off uh, number of people who had been sold pups in that in that in those theaters, um, who had laid their everything, you know, who had lost everything in some cases, um, for you know what, what did what did how did George Bush put it yesterday during oh, that gosh. speech he gave? He said, <laughs> wow. you know, one man's uh, invasion, immoral invasion of Iraq. Uh, I mean Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and then he said, ah, Iraq too. And that was, that was everything. That was everything right there in those two words. He knows, he knew, he sees the, 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 you know, the relative argument, uh, in a, in a geopolitical sense there. And, and he let that slip in that, in that fragile moment. And, and, and afterwards, how did he excuse it? He said, oh, you know, I'm 75 years old. Yeah. Well, you know, in vino veritas, but also with, with, age veritas as well mm-hmm. and you know, you know it's like it's like it's like old floridian drivers they back out of the driveways <laughs> without looking right it's uh-huh. just it's just here i come here it is you know deal with it and that's what bush did in those few words yesterday and uh, you were always going to get these people you know we knew it we knew it and 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 i'm so glad that we were right about it because these people i think are the most honest they have seen and smelled corruption, you know, in so many different ways over their lives. And I don't just mean political corruption. I mean, moral corruption. I mean, you know, the, some of these people have looked um, the monsters of the Taliban dead in the eyes. Some of them have seen the corruption, uh, at, you know, at the top of their own ranks in the military. Uh, they've certainly seen the political corruption, the, the lies that they've been told, uh, you know, as, as, as they're encouraged to step in front of a hail of bullets to defend those lies. Um, so good, good. More warriors uh, against the warmongers. Yeah, it seems like people. I mean, Lindsey Graham and, and and Mitch McConnell would gladly throw those guys on a on a C one thirty and send them over there to the die like today if they knew that they could go over there and, and continue. I mean, y- you just look at the logistics of it. Yeah, but hold on, isn't hold on? It's funny though, isn't it? They they are more than happy to send those people to fight others. They are terrified when they have to fight them at home. Yep. Yep. And I think they're going to be really scared once January comes because we're going to have more rather than less of these candidates getting over the finish line. You look at the logistics of the budget, fiscal year 2020, $56 billion to Afghanistan. Fiscal year 2021, $50 billion to Afghanistan. Fiscal year 2022, zero 
dollars to Afghanistan. So the military industrial complex was it needs to eat, and the administrative state is probably as equally hungry. And uh, we were going to find a way to get that money back into it, and and here we are, uh, sending all of our crap money and uh, you know bad politicians. Worst war zone ever in the history of war zones. <laughs> And, uh, you know, these are the people that were literally hiding under the desk on January 6th as, like, Buffalo Man was, you know, doing taking selfies in, in Nancy Pelosi's chair and someone was shitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, which we have confirmed happened. I still need to shake that guy's hand yeah, he, after he washes. Ameri- real American hero. But the fact of the matter is, in, in, <laughs> in consecutive weekends, 82-year-old Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell will take their private jets over to a place where they're, you're, apparently you're not allowed to fly into and walk the streets body armorless. With uh, uh, Zelensky, it just it baffles the mind. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. I mean, we were talking about it. Well, the whole thing was probably filmed at Universal Studios. True story. We were talking about it with <laughs> Max Miller last week. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi gets out of the car in Manhattan after she goes up to, to fake cry for the Buffalo Massacre. And uh, she's got her, you know, highest level American Express card like in her mouth. And then she's like, oh, let me take it out of my mouth and just wave it around for the paparazzi to see before she goes on like a four hour shopping spree and then gets ice cream. I hate her. Everybody mm. hates her. Yeah, I think I think there's probably an element of self-hatred there as well. I mean, I don't think you can spend that much time in <laughs> politics and, and, and be assured that you're doing the right thing. Um, yeah, look, I don't understand all those numbers you just said. I need, I'm need. i going to need that in border walls, please. <laughs> it's a lot of border walls. It's, it's close to 30 border walls now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, what, that's kind of where we're at. Um, Next thing I want to touch on, I'm sure you're extremely mm. pleased with this because this gives us a uh, excellent opportunity to not get swatted, probably as likely in the near future. The disinformation board has been put on pause, and apparently Nina Jankowicz is uh, resigning before she even started. Good for her. Yeah. That's a solid move. So that kind of broke this week. The woman who, uh, TikTok sensation, sensation who uh, championed the Hunter Biden laptop is Russian disinformation and um, talked about editing people's tweets when they didn't agree with the... Uh, correct narrative that she felt was right uh, will no longer be heading up that, uh, I don't know, branch of the Department of Homeland Security? So I'll, 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 I'll let everybody into something that I do here, and, and that is that when I don't like the narrative that the right is uh, pursuing on something, I'll, I'll typically not say anything anymore. Because it's often not worth getting into a real-time fight over it. You know, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the story of the Zen master, right? Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. And, um, you know, I... Oh, sorry. There's somebody mowing the lawn out here. I'll <laughs> get somewhere a little bit quieter. I, um, I don't like where we are on this uh, Ministry of Disinformation and Nina Jankowicz thing at the moment. I'll tell you why. They... Um, they realize they, they, they overplayed their hand by publicizing this and publicizing the yes. um, person at the top of it. And so what they're doing now is not abandoning the prospect of it. What they're going to do, and, and I think they even even said this themselves from the White House press podium, is roll that kind of stuff up into other agencies and other uh, ways of, of dealing with that. And, and that's worse mm-hmm. than having a head figure at an agency you know, as unconstitutional as that agency is, by the way, uh, if I'm saying if we are to fight that battle, I would rather fight it with a with a, a more transparent public figure, an agency that you can FOIA and and everything in one place coming out of, you know, disinformation.gov email address. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I'm just speaking journalistically here now. It's far easier to keep an eye on things like that than if they, let's say, have a disinformation czar at every agency. And then every agency answers to a, you know, faceless bureaucrat who has some title that we don't even figure out what they've been doing for another four or five years. But what they've been doing is amassing this, you know, disinformation database and they have all your details and so on and so forth. And that's what it sounds like to me that they're going to do. They've abandoned this idea of doing it centrally and they're going to bury these these um, these requirements across across government agencies. So. Look, is it a quote unquote, you know, narrative win, rhetorical win? Sure. It's embarrassing for the government. Um, But governments don't really care about being embarrassed. Right. It brings us back to what I was saying earlier. They don't believe the problem is with them. They believe the problem is with you. So they don't care if you find them cringeworthy. They're not after your uh, approval anymore. Um, This is this is going to lead to worse things. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you agree with the narrative. Like we've talked to Joe Ken about this ex- extensively, and you know he's got a, a, a like an intelligence background when he worked with the CIA. He he said that stuff like this, like they were so comfortable with the, not thinking that they were going to they, – they expected to probably get hit by, like, people like you, Posobiec, Bannon. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't think that it was going to be like, okay, we're going to have congressional hearings and now we're going to threaten to not approve the DHS budget if you don't remove this shit, like, immediately. Like, I don't think they really expected that in their attempt to legitimize and consolidate this into, like, one office and put a head there. Um, you know, and, and it's like um, Jean-Pierre said yesterday, this was never an intent to – to do censorship, to police speech or remove content. We all know that's completely false. We yeah. saw that with the Veritas leak from Twitter this week. I mean, our our intelligence agencies and federal law enforcement agencies collab with the mainstream media and, and big tech outlets like on a daily basis. It's like what they do to push their narratives. And uh, like you said, probably an overt embarrassment. But Joe Kent said this, this whole disinformation thing has been probably – up and running for a long time and they just felt like oh yeah it's just it's gonna be another thing we roll out and no one will care because we'll have another disaster in a few weeks and uh everybody will go and focus on that yeah i mean i i don't necessarily agree with i I don't disagree but the point about um they're not expecting the congressional hearings and the approval on the budgets and things like that yes i agree in the sense that they don't really expect republicans to ever do anything it's right. not been in the in the in the um repertoire of the republican party to to do things to stop the other side for a very long time um but at the same time i still think they don't care about that i think i think you know in in a broad sense, this was a this was a misstep for them, but it's not going to. I don't think it's going to. You know, the bigger problems that they have out there at the moment, it, it, people aren't worried about. You know what some kook who likes to sing about, you know, Putin is is doing. It's emblematic, but it's not. It's not necessarily the core of the problem. People out there in the country are far more, far more focused on when. A Democrat goes on television and talks about how men can get pregnant, mm-hmm. you know, and these are these are these are very visceral worries for people because they they're not worried about themselves, you know, misidentifying a man for a woman. They're worried about their children being you know, raised in that environment and what it will do, not just do to their children. Um, but what may be done to their children, um, you know, actively uh, through all of this. So I think I think, yes. Very cool. Jankowicz got embarrassed, but let's let's shift 
that shift our focus back into the areas where we're strongest. And where we're strongest isn't getting into a tete-a-tete -tete over bureaucracy. Where we're strongest is getting to those issues that actually uh, provide a very existential threat for the future of the country. Yeah. And, and when you talk about those threats, the next thing I want to talk about, um, Biden had announced last week, we saw Ron Klain kind of teasing it on the Sunday morning talk shows. Hopefully mm. you didn't catch it. I, I, I had to, you know, sit through a little bit of that just to have some content for the show. They're going into like full campaign mode, which will be full skirt scorched earth mode. Everyone's going to be racist and misogynist and anti-trans and all this other stuff. It, it's that time of the year again. But I think for the first time in a long while, it's not everybody getting on board, but we're seeing a lot more of it than usual. Uh, people are starting to fight back, probably on both sides. It's pretty interesting. To, how do you feel about people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos kind of like flipping script. I don't know what personally they're going to do. Like Jeff Bezos might be talking crap about Joe Biden and then go de donate a couple hundred million dollars to his reelection campaign in 2024. But, at, but to see them like overtly go out there and, and kind of just do these talking points. Like, I mean, I think Elon Musk saying that he's going to vote for a Republican in the next presidential election is, is, is kind of big. He's been pretty badly abused by this administration. I mean, he's the largest holder of, defense contracts and they want to do congressional investigations into his finances with that stuff. It, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And then, you know, they've been the supposedly greenest administration in the history of the universe, but they failed to include Tesla and SpaceX, which are two of the greenest corporations in the history of the universe in any of the things that they've done. Is it weird that, you know, you see more Republicans than normal jumping in this fight and, and kind of like going out there and being like really pushing back on this administration and some of the stuff that they usually do in addition to seeing some of the people on like the progressive left and like a lot of those virtue singlers like the must and the Bezos and some other, I mean you've even seen like man they, everybody in the news fucking hates Chuck Todd now because all he does is talk about mm -hmm. Joe Biden's terrible poll numbers like I you know even and Bill Maher like it's just weird to see these guys going out there and saying like you want to know what like now we're getting a little ridiculous. This country is completely awful and, and going so far off the rails. We got to do something about it. And and what, you know, I'd love going out and stumping for like all this virtue single bullshit that we, you know, have been doing for the last decade or plus, but now it's, mm. it's like, it's ruining everything everywhere. And, and <laughs> no one looks like they want to stop it. So how do you feel about that whole narrative? Well, I, you know, I don't think I would um, take Bezos and Musk in the same breath. I, I think, there's there's different things that are that are uh, you know motivating uh, those people. I think Musk is far more of a Bill Maher, for instance, and and Bezos is is far more of a um, prick. Yeah. Um, you yes, know, you know Be Bezos is doing doing the basic. You know, I am in trouble if there is a whopping great Republican majority. Therefore, let me try and you know, cushion this blow as much as possible. He's in, he's almost in a sort of damage control mode. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. He's obviously going to donate massive amounts to Democratic Party causes. Musk is a different thing. I mean, the same applies in the sense that, okay, here is a billionaire who needs um, to dissuade government from, you know, you know, investigations or whatever, you know, he might fear in that regard, but also needs to encourage the majority party that he foresees at the, after the next election to continue the uh, stipends and, uh, you know, corporate welfare that he has enjoyed um, for so long and, and really get on board with the way, you know, as a, as a, as a kind of in, innovator and entrepreneur that he wants or he foresees 
um, that industry, those industries, whether it's electric cars or space or whatever going. He's really trying to corral the, the you know, uh, apparatus of government behind him. And I think that is informing a lot of uh, where he stands. But I do believe that he also feels the left has left him. And that is, you know, let's, let's be fair to Bill Maher on this as well. Bill Maher has always been willing to criticize the left. Mm-hmm. He, he famously, I think, apologized or at least offered a level of regret for his million dollar donation to the 2008 Obama campaign and, and, and was, was, you know, quite vocal about his, his disdain for some of the things that administration did. And, um, you know, I think he's applying the same uh, element of academic rigor to, to the Biden administration. And the problem with Maher, of course, is that he's, he's wrong on most things. Yes. But at least he's consistent. <laughs> you know, uh, he's, he's consistently wrong um, on, on, on moral questions. But, but he's consistent. And I think he deserves some credit for not just being one of these uh, flip-floppers. Uh, you see that way more, obviously, in, 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 uh, you know, in the corporate world because they have, they have interests. They see government as it is which is uh, something that is a necessary evil, right? You have to deal with them, unfortunately, um, but they're often in the way. And uh, I think the problem here is, is this, is that once again, and this is, you know, this, without trying to seem like I'm throwing shade on anyone here, this was the same thing that happened when, when Kanye West was, you know, so so uh, involved, let's say, in the in the MAGA world for that mm-hmm. brief period of time. It is that everybody on the right flocked to him. Yay, Kanye! This is great. We're popular. We're the cool kids now. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then what was really going on was was Kim Kardashian lobbying for early jail release for violent criminals. Um, and the right took its foot off the pedal in creating its own talent inside because we thought we had, you know, hooked the MVP of the world in Kanye West. And the same thing is happening here. I wrote a Substack about this recently. You can't put all your eggs in Elon Musk. Yep. Um, don't don't put them anywhere inside him. You know, <laughs> um, be- because we for so long cobbled together. The patience, the wherewithal, the technology, the people to build alternative platforms to Twitter. And then as soon as somebody who isn't even on our side, who has just said, like, maybe I'll be on your side at some point. As soon as that person comes along, we go, oh, yeah, you know, forget all those other ones that we've spent 10 years now building and the infrastructure building that we're going to we're going to throw all our eggs back in the thing that we were complaining about for so long. We're morons. We're morons if we do that. And, and you know, just a, I am as guilty as the next man of defaulting to opening my Twitter app when I have something to say rather than opening, you know, one of the others. But at least I'm self-aware of it and I self-flagellate every time I do it. And I think we all need a little bit more shame about us when we, when we you know, rely on the other side to give us the goods. Oh, yeah, please. Please come and teach us how to be cool. Fuck that. I don't I don't need those people to come and teach us how to be cool. I need us to focus on what we want to achieve and build from the inside out. Yeah, uh, you make a whole lot of sense there. I mean, we've gotten into such a weird place the last couple decades. You've seen like all the labor unions, big tech, uh, the corporate media and the government all kind of morph into like this one big multiple way street blob. 
and it's spilled out into everywhere. And it just seems like at the time, you know, the establishment, the country club Republicans, they were the overwhelming majority in the party. They were what claimed to be the pulse of the middle-class, blue-collar, working, nuclear family of the country. And they always felt turned off by this weird direction that that was all going in. And now it's just like it, you make a lot of sense when you say every time something comes along, it's like, oh, here comes like one of the cool kids. He's going to sit at our lunch table. It's like everybody goes to that lunch table, then nobody wants to get up. Unfortunately, once the cool kid gets up and walks away and like goes and sits back with the blob, they're still sitting there like hoping that he's going to be friends with them still. And, and it's, it's screwed us over a whole lot more times than it has done well for us. Yeah, look, everybody complains about Regina George, but everybody wants Regina George to sit at their table. You know, yeah, it's a Mean Girls reference in case you didn't get it. Oh no, I like that one a lot. <laughs> there you go. I look at it this way: Donald Trump sat at the cool kids' table, and he's still here. I mean, he'll he that that's pretty much all you have to kind of you know worry about. I mean, he's not the end all, be all of everything, but we got one of the big cool kids. We got the billionaire billionaire playboy philanthropist, you know, sex machine, TV star whatever art of the deal guy. And, and that's our guy. And I think, you know, sometimes we wish that he would get up and leave the table, but he's still here and we need to kind of, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, but, but look, Donald Trump was the, was the high school quarterback, right. To continue yeah. the, to continue the mean girls uh, <laughs> theme here. Uh, you know, Donald Trump was, was always one of the good guys, but he hung out with the bad guys because he understood, you know, what, you know, the game that had to be played. That's it's Regina George's boyfriend. Yep. Right. And and, you know, he's got to puff his chest out, suck it up, even though he thinks that the world around him is, is morally depraved and he doesn't enjoy. It. I mean, he's on the record of, on, on those things for decades and decades and decades. He's been con entirely consistent. So it's not so much that we convinced one of the cool kids to come over. He was always a cool kid at heart. Like Trump, Trump was always that guy inside. him. Um, I'm not sure you can say the same for these other people. And um, I I'm just. I don't know. I don't know the word. I think I think it's which is rare for me, by the way. Mm. I think it's um, it's nerve wracking. Uh, I wake up every morning feeling nerve wracked about that particular issue because it feels like once again, we are going to be led down this garden path of, of, of celebrity endorsement and so on and so forth and, and have not a lot to show for it by the end. Well, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's one of those things where we're going to have to see what happens, and I, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, there's a longstanding track record of instances where stuff like that has happened, and it just seems like, you know, we, we so few get to sit with the cool kids, the big cool kids, the movie stars, the Kanye Wests, and the Elon Musk. Yeah, look, the, the counterpoint to it, and I'm sure a lot of people are screaming it at their, at their, whatever they're listening to this on right now, is that, hey, if you can, t if you can get some of that, take it. Sure, fine. I'm okay with that. All I'm saying is you don't let them lead the way. No, no, we leave that to people like you and, and, and Jack and, and James <laughs> no, 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 not me, Eddie. You leave it to you. <laughs> Man, we have tried to push leadership on you every single time you've been on here. It's like reflexive. You you know, like, no, 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 that's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. You sure? You sure, sure? Um, I, I like to do the, the lay leadership thing, which is to say that I'm, you know, my phone is always on. Uh, silent, and um, I'm I'm poolside if you need me, but only if you really need me. <laughs> I like it. No, it's good. I think uh, last thing I want to touch with you on, Raheem, we, we, we've talked about, you know, people starting to get into this fight for reals. It, it's become a slugfest over the past half decade. How hard do you think we can push back 
with what we've got organized right now, which, you know, over the course of the last hour we talked about isn't that much organization. There's a lot of bright stars in this solar system. Uh, it just seems like sometimes they're like passing ships in the night. They're not always necessarily connected. Listen, when some of you guys line up, it's 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 amazing to watch. You know, I'll, I'll always reference back to War Room. Sometimes you guys would have just a panel, and it would be like one after the other after the other. Amazing narrative. Things you did with Brexit. You know, you and Nigel out there, some of the books you've read, if people really go out and, and look at how awful England has become because of this globalist narrative uh, and, and mm-hmm. how elegantly you were able to, you know, put it into pages. Like, so, and like the dynamic that you and Natalie have. Like, if I saw you two guys on the street, I would be like, there's no fucking way. And then when I hear you guys on a podcast, it's like you've got this guy. He's brilliant. Like, there isn't anything you can't ask him that he doesn't know some kind of facts about. And then you have this girl who's Apart just, from Georgia. Apparently Georgia. But you know what? You wait on David <laughs> Purdue, so good enough. Um, but And then you have Natalie, which, like, you know, we'll hype her up. She's a complete package for her age and where yeah. she's at. In this day and age, one in a billion, to say the mm-hmm. least. And, uh, you know, we'd like to see, like, a little bit more of like alliances happening. Like, you know, there's all these standalone movies in Hollywood, but eventually they always lead up to like the next big Avengers one. We, we hope at some point, you know, just to, like for us fanboying that, you know, you guys can all collaborate a little bit more in the future. So this is something that I tried to do uh, in my youth, uh, by which I mean in my twenties. Um, and I'm, I'm now in my mid thirties okay. and, and I've never managed to achieve this, this thing, which is, which is putting this network of people together. I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't even believe when I say to you that, you know, of the of the top, you know, MAGA, whether you call them pundits, analysts, whatever, journalists, etc. You know, there isn't even really a, a group chat amongst everyone. Hmm. There's not. There are little. There are you know, people have their little group chats. Like I'm, I'm in a few, but there isn't like this whole slack channel or discord machine where we all just be like oh hey you know i'm gonna ping this over to you know this person because i know that they've been focusing on this or here's a link that somebody's just sent me and their work is really good i'm gonna amplify it like that is that is the left has these you know that even left journalists have these these list serves and everything and that's why you always see like we always joke about right like all the message went out this morning because they're all saying the same thing. No, they, the message literally went out that morning. Like, it's not it's not a you know, we're not making a joke about how well tied up the left is in terms of their comms and their strategy. They, they understand this very well. And we, we don't uh, because philosophically we believe in, you know, the little platoons. We don't necessarily believe in in that centralized approach to things. But there isn't. You're right. You're so right. There isn't enough information sharing, communication. We don't get together enough. Um, you know, I tried to put networks, parties, everything together in Washington, D.C. for years and years. And the problem the problem was not that people weren't willing to get involved and to come, but the problem was that at these points in time, they were just there to socialize. Mm-hmm. Really, they were just there to get fucked up, right? <laughs> like that, you know, if you, have a, if you have a drinks reception, a party, a dinner, a lunch, whatever, People five, six glasses of wine in by the end of that, you know, at best, uh, and no work ends up getting done. And then, of course, you know, the, uh, the alternate to that is conferences, a little bit more formal process. Well, I mean, you know, look at the conferences as they exist at the moment. They're just massive pay- parties, right? Mm-hmm. Just massive rages. And people just go there, again, to, to party, to blow off steam. Yes, you network and you meet some people, but re- little actually ever gets done. 
the people who really understand this, I think, are the Claremont Institute. Yes. I think they understand the balance that needs to be struck there. And, you know, I did a Lincoln Fellowship with the Claremont Institute. And, and, and by the way, for your audience, and, and even for you guys, if you don't read the Claremont Review of Books every quarter, then you are stupider than you need to be. <laughs> it is a fantastic publication, and, and it's only once a quarter. Just, and and you, you will not agree with everything in there, and that's the beauty of, the, of, of CRB. But Claremont also puts together um, events for, you know, debate events, discussion events in the daytime, all across the country, for serious people to come together and, 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 and actually, you know, winelessly talk about, you know, how to solve some of these issues. And, and I just actually went to a, a fellow alumni event in uh, Tampa. And again, you know, you sit there for hours in the day and you are actually doing the hard work of figuring out how to advance the ball. On our on our side, uh, and then in the evening, guess what? You can go get fucked up. There you go. <laughs> um, but, but most 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 organisations, most entities, you know, they don't strike a healthy balance in that regard. And um, you know, I really, I really wish we had a better way that we all communicated because, you know, when the Nina take the Nina Jankovic thing, when the Nina Jankovic thing came out. Everybody was just kind of on their own feeling out like, do we like this? Do we not like this? And then like Posobiec sort of went, yeah, we do like this. And I was like, mm, but do we? And then, you know, I know Jack extremely well. Mm -hmm. He will tell me he will tell me privately. He'll be like, well, we don't like all of it, but it's important to take victory laps and it's important to keep the energy of the base up. And he's got valid points. And so we all have these different things that we bring to the table and we so rarely share them amongst ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. it's good that you mentioned that. You know, we had two of his coworkers on the show with us uh, last week. Chris Barron and uh, Brent Hamachek joined us. We did like a little roundtable mm. kind of. We went down the, the rung of, of things going on, and it was good. You know, you got you had Chris who was you know stars and stripes, like ripping open his shirt with the big eagle tattooed on his chest, and then you had Brent ready to bring him down with his nice doom and gloom, and tells us like, yeah, that's a really excellent point you made, but here's the reality of it: everything sucks, and it's only going to get worse. So yep. it, it was good to kind of go back and forth. We had a good time with them, and. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny because both of them have different uh, opinions and they promote different narratives than Jack does. And I said, I could only imagine what your guys' Zoom call conference meetings look like when you have, you know, Jack and, and Charlie on one end and then you two. And then you've got the other guy in there, uh, Chris uh, Webb, I think it is. And, and it, it's probably just a shit show of them slinging narratives back and forth with each other because they're all very opinionated. But it, it works. It, it makes for a more balanced platform. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, Jack is probably one of the best, um, you know, he's the, he's the nice guy in the, uh, in, in Marga world. He very rarely gets frustrated with people. He's extremely understanding. Even if he thinks you're dead wrong, he will be as, as polite as humanly possible in, in, in his attempts to, and acceptance of, if he can't, getting you to see his perspective and approach, you know, the issue from his perspective. And, and he kind of has become a central hub uh, for a lot of people in that yep. regard. And I'm, again, I'm, I, I'm so happy for that because, you know, when Jack was at OAN and no, no, you know, no shade on OAN, but he was underutilized mm -hmm. as a, as a, as an individual. And uh, you know, that, that happens in, in business. When you sign a contract with a business, you have to represent the business and that's you know perfectly fine, but it was constraining him as an individual. And I'm so glad now that he's getting to do the things that he, you know, really shines at and feels passionate about. And, uh, you know, 
we bought human events away from the Salem Media Group a couple of years ago. Um, so that thing is now taking off under Jack's stewardship. I'm so, I'm so glad. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then we founded the, the War Room, um, you know, Steve and I and Jason Miller back a couple of years ago. And um, now I'm kind of now I'm kind of looking at what is the next thing that we have? What is the next institution that we either have to buy or build? Um, in order to in order to round off this thing, and I still come back to an idea that I had some time ago, which was for a a think tank, a small like boutique think tank, not one of these big DC uh, you know full square block operations like the Heritage Foundation <laughs> with its eighty million dollar a year budget. By the way, yeah, um, eighty million dollars a year. By the way, the, the Heritage Foundation costs to run. Um, and you know, takes the five dollar donations from the old grannies who can who can barely afford to fill up their twenty year old car. They <laughs> yeah. they take that money to do so. And meanwhile, the National Pulse, you know, and and Human Events and War Room and all of that, you know, they run on a couple of hundred grand a year, you know, max really. And uh, you know, it's it's incredible to you know perceive this great hulking behemoth of so called conservative think tanks in Washington D.C., but none of them really represent. The public or the national interest, they represent special interest. Um, The Heritage Foundation has famously uh, taken money from big tech, for instance. And uh, I think a think tank, something like uh, the Westphalia Institute, Westphalia being the series of treaties that led to the (laughs) common acceptance in the West of the nation state, uh, an entity like that that has housed within it the apparatus that people need to use. So we have a research team that just pumps out data and then anybody can, you, you can take from that data or, you know, Turning Point can take from that data. Today is America can take from that data. You know, everybody can pull from that central resource. Um, and, you know, an, oper- an, an, an opposition research arm to that and things like that. And we don't have that core competency, that core DC competency um, within the MAGA movement right now. And so uh, that, that is the next thing that I think somebody's going to have to come along and build. You know, I was going to ask you what you're going to be working on next before I was going to ask you to let our listenership know just how awesome the National Pulse was and where they can go to find it. And here you are. So apparently you're st- putting you back in that leadership position. You're going to be founding a think tank. Congratulations. Stay exclusive right now. <laughs> just broke the news there. We even got music for it. You got it? And there it is. And then you want to tell our <laughs> listenership a little bit the national about the National Pulse? You've got, listen, if you just want to read what the actual pulse of the nation is right now, you got you got to get over and check out this website. I just got billed for my monthly subscription. Listen, between you and the revolver, those are ones that I will gladly donate till the day I die because I appreciate what you guys do so much and uh, let our listenership know where they could fund real news at. Look, I mean, you know, taking taking the pulse isn't about you know that doesn't necessarily tell you anything up front, does it? You know, somebody's pulse can be high, somebody can be low. You could have different things impacting that. We like to think that sometimes it's where the nation is, and sometimes we think it's 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 a measure of where the nation's going to be. What we write about, what we report about, you know, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is getting to something relatively early mm-hmm. and telling people, "Hey, you want to come down? You want to watch this? It's going to come down the line. You're going to start seeing more of it. Get prepared." And you know, we famously did that at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, we've we've done it on on. You know, God bless Natalie Winters. She's extraordinary at this. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing who behind the scenes, who the players are and how they're about to impact, you know, not just national, but really global um, political affairs. And so we try to stay um, 
away from special interest, corporate interest, foundation money, anything like that. So we just have grassroots. We've got about 4,000 members. On average, they give us each $8 a month. There are all sorts of perks you get for, for signing up, hats and uh, Discord chat with us yep. and, and all this other stuff. And it's very simple to sign up. It's just fundrealnews.com because that is what we should be doing, whether it's um, Project Veritas or you know any of the other groups on the right who are trying to you know, bring journalism back to what it should be, which is in the in the in the in the national interest, in the public interest, not in the corporate interest. Um, Fund Real News is what we should all be doing. So it's fundrealnews.com. Yeah, well, I link that in the show description today. And then you're going to be at Amfest West with Natalie in just uh, what about two weeks now? Yeah, it's been a busy summer already. I've been I've been all over the country, and uh, we keep the show going in the Coachella Valley in California, I think, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's you know, if you go to ampfestwest.com, uh, it's, it's a great environment because it's not a massive environment of thousands of people. It tends to be quite intimate. So you get to spend a lot of time with the people you're there to see, you know, chat, you know, chat one-on-one with a lot of people, and you get more intimate panel discussions and things like that. Last year we did the Ampfest down in um, – Miami at Doral and um, you know I, I just every almost after every panel uh, Posobic myself Darren Beatty a couple of others we just go and sit in the audience and hang out in the audience because it's that kind of vibe so if people are into that uh, the website I think is amp ampfestwest.com I will live link that one in the Wait, show are you well. guys going to be there um that is close yeah it is pretty close I'm going to have to see what uh I mean, Noah's our, our travel manager, so he's going to have to look at our schedule and see uh, just about if we could make that. And if not, listen, you might run into us over there. It would be a great time. Yeah. Uh, well, think about, okay, so I used to do the early, well, I wouldn't say early, but, but in my career, early CPACs of 1,008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and radio row back then was so cool. Everybody would walk past. You could interview everybody and anybody and I think you guys should be the start of Radio Row at Ampfest. Ooh, we're going to have mm. to figure out who's directing that and get in contact with them. I'll set it up for you. How about oh, that? There it is. Well, it looks like we'll be talking offline after the show. We appreciate that. You <laughs> know what? If, if you can make something like that happen, we'll, we'll gladly be there. Noah, Noah's pretty good. He's a, he was in a band for 20 years, so he could pack this stuff up in GIF. Sounds good to me. And as always, guys, thank you for having me. And sorry about talking your ear off. I just got really into it. Which you guys, to your, to, again, to your testimony, and this is to the audience, share this show with people because these are some of the only interviewers that I will just stay on the phone with because it's, such a, it's always such an interesting conversation. So help them grow. Well, that's because we go out and do our research. We know what everybody's thinking about. Listen, Raheem, you got some of the best opinions in the game, and we want to hear them. Our listenership loves them. And, of course, I'm going to start bugging you almost automatically to come back at some point later in the summer, if, and hopefully we'll see you at Amfest. But uh, it's it's been a treat. We really do appreciate you taking out the time. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's like you said, you want to talk to the audience. Sometimes you see these guys on social media, you see them on television, and it's like, oh, there they are. They're like people that I only see like in that aspect. These are actual people. If you if you talk to them, <laughs> you start to conversate with them, they're, they're as real as it gets. And this is the kind of real that we need. It's not the kind of real where we just hit talking points and do like this. There's the human side to these people, too. And I think that's what you know a lot of people like to hear when you guys come on the show as well. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you again for having me. Yeah, thank you. This is the editor-in-chief of the National Pulse. He's got a pretty fire sub stack. And uh, one of our great friends, Raheem Kassam, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Thanks, guys. Take care. Well, what do you guys think? Raheem Kassam. I like it. 
he came as advertised, and we'd be excited to have him back. Joining us next on the show today, he's currently the Douglas County Commissioner, who's running an America First campaign, and the son of legendary basketball coach, Jerry Tarkanian. Danny, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast today. No, thank you for having me on. No, it's our pleasure, sir. How's everything going with you? Everything's great. Um, the campaign's going great and everything. Um, uh, it, the interesting thing about this campaign is I'm running against an 11-year incumbent, and he's well-liked because no, no one's ever ran against him that had any kind of uh, money or work ethic. So the voters here don't know much about his voting record. But once you tell them what his voting record is, boy, his numbers drop like you've never seen before. He goes under 20%, and I'm over 60%. Uh, so we're doing a really good job, I think, in getting the message out. We're working very hard with our, our TV, radio, social media, um, and, and email blasts. And then we're also doing a lot of field work where we have knocked on over 22,000 doors and called 60,000 homes. So we're getting a great response. Uh, it's expensive. Uh, it's not easy to be an incumbent, but this one certainly is beatable. No, you want to know what we see? It's a trend that's going on across the nation right now. Uh, this whole wave, the nationalist populist movement, uh, the Save America campaign, the America First candidates, there's there's something that we've talked about it with so many of our guests, dozens of campaigns across the country. What started maybe with the Tea Party a little bit kind of evolved into what the theory was of what Donald Trump ran on in 2016. We got to see it for four years in the White House. And now what's happened to the country in the last 16 months or so, it's kind of like evolved into this huge wave of like just a broad spectrum of candidates. You've never seen such a diverse group of people running the Republican Party as they are in probably in this midterm elections. Well, you know, it's only common sense. I, when Donald Trump first started talking about America first policies, I'm thinking, why do you have to even say that? Aren't we supposed to be taking care of Americans first and American businesses and people first before you're out here working with all the uh, the, the uh, world states and everything? It's just such common sense uh, thinking that I, I believe when you can get it out there and you articulate it the right way, you get the vast majority of Americans in your corner. Yeah, I, I think you make a whole lot of sense there, and it's it's one of the things is you see him go around the country right now in support of a lot of these different campaigns and running these Save America rallies all over the place, the amount of people that are showing up, and the amount of people, you know, you're starting to get receipts in primaries that have already happened. Uh, it, it's almost, it's close to a three-to-one margin of Republican turnout in, in primaries that historically have had poor turnouts in, in just the few that we've had so far. Well, look, at you give two years of Joe Biden or only a year and a half and you're going to get a great turnout. So. Yeah, who would have thought we would have ever had to like specify that, hey, you know, we should probably just do what's best for our country. That's the point. Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, I mean, OK. So I had an interesting debate with my opponent. His name's Mark Amaday. He's been an 11 year incumbent. He was the first GOP congressman that joined the Democrats in support of President Trump's first impeachment inquiry. And then President Trump put some pressure on him and he backed off and voted for against the impeachment. And now he thinks that's okay. He says, hey, it's all right. After three years of the Russia collusion and 10 months before President Trump's reelection, who in their right mind, who had any kind of honesty and conviction, would say, hey, yeah, let's let Adam Schiff run another uh, uh, impeachment inquiry on President Trump. I'm sure that's going to be fair. And this is the kind of guy we're dealing with. So we had a debate last week, and this is I mentioned this just because we're talking about America First policies, but uh, Mark Amaday voted for that $40 billion yep. to Ukraine. So I said to him, I said, Mark, how, many people, how, many, how much money has been given from those other countries out there that are in close proximity to Ukraine that have a more vested interest? Well, none have, but we don't have time to wait. Uh, Ukraine needs help right now. We can't wait for those other countries. See, to me, that's a perfect example. What do you care about most? Do you care about taking care of the rest of the world most? 
or do you care about taking care of American citizens first and foremost? You know, only 19 billion of that is even for military aid. 21 billion is for other things such as propping up their financial uh, system. Well, heck, isn't our financial system tatering on on, uh, ruin right now? Let's take care of Americans first. Yeah. Is it stuff like that, Danny, that compelled you to jump into this race? You you didn't get in as early as some of the other candidates and to see how fast you got out there, like you said, with the marketing, with the ads campaigns, with the knocking on doors, town halls and, and already a debate uh, for, for you to to pick up so much steam and really resonate with the people out there in Nevada, too. Well, I was asked to run against Mark back in December, but I just got on the Board of County Commissioners and I wanted to, uh, I didn't think this was the right time. And then the more you watch Mark Amadei and his votes, the more I got upset at him. And then the more I learned about him, because me, like many others in this district, I didn't know how bad his votes were. Uh, then what really tipped me off, it was a Sunday before the final filing date on Friday. And Mark Amadei came to a St. Patrick's Day dinner uh, right after his $1.5 trillion uh budget vote. He was one of the 38 congressmen who voted for it. So they asked him, Mark, why would you vote for that? And he said, hey, it was going to pass anyways. So at least I'm honest about it. And I sat there at that moment. I said, that's what's wrong with politics. You have somebody who just is so happy to be in his position and doesn't want to lose it, that he wants to go along, get along, not stir any trouble, even though when he may not believe it's right, and that, that bill certainly wasn't right, mm-hmm. I was going to pass anyway. So I'm going to vote for it. I said, I'm running against him now. Yeah, it's really good to see that he lit that fire underneath you. And even though you had gotten into like, well, you know, what, what would seem like a, a great job as, as the county commissioner, you know, this the, it, it's all hands on deck for the country. There's there's so many things that are really just crushing all the middle class blue collar families across this country. Our podcast has a really good relationship with the Lexalt campaign. We've had Adam on here several times. He's running an America First campaign. He's doing a great job and, and, and championing a lot of the things that you're running in there. He said between like jobs... Energy prices, including gasoline and crime, those are like the three biggest things right now that's really hitting hard in Nevada. Do you see those things as some of the big things right there that uh, that you're tying into your campaign that we really need to get turned around there? Yeah. Now, crime may be a bigger thing for Adam because he has Clark County and some sure. of those areas, but we're here in rural Nevada. The two things that people here are so upset about is, first of all, it's the illegal immigration. Yeah. Two million people came across the border illegally last year that we know of. Uh, 7,000 per day last month. And now they're talking about 100,000 every week. Uh, You know, you heard the um, Texas uh, lieutenant governor say that he believes by the time Biden leaves office, 20% of our country will be filled with illegal immigrants. Now, Mark Amaday, for 13 years, 11 years now, since he's been in office, has voted to give benefits and citizenship to illegal immigrants. La Raza, the Hispanic activist group, uh, praised Mark Amaday and nine other GOP congressmen for their vote. And this is 2013. Where they voted to continue, they could have voted to stop the funding of President Obama's illegal DACA program, but Mark Amaday voted to continue the funding. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I, you know, I talk with the, at these debates, and Mark said, "Oh, you know, we, I, I don't want to um, uh, penalize people that came across the country illegally uh, at no fault to their own. But what about the people who've done it the right way? What about the people that are waiting nine?" 10 years and they can't get in and they do the, the right way and we're going to penalize them. Uh, so anyways, 
Illegal immigration, second thing is obviously the inflation, um, the, the cost of everything, particularly the gas prices here, uh, where there's so much of it is rural Nevada where people are driving so much. Yeah. Uh, the cost of milk is more than doubled. It's crazy. Uh, Mark Amaday has voted for every single final budget that's come before him in the 11 years he's been in office. The national debt has gone up $14 trillion since Mark Amaday has been in office. He was one of only 38 congressmen who voted for that $1.5 trillion bill that had 10 billion dollars in earmarks at, and 4,000 of them. Mark's response was, hey, I'm bringing back uh, projects for Nevada. Well, his projects were one-tenth of one percent of all the earmarks, and he thinks it's best to sell down the entire country because he gets one-tenth of one percent of the earmarks marks that's causing this great, this, this painful inflation. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's why it's so easy to convince voters to leave somebody who's been there for so long, is you just tell them about these votes and they run from them. Yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. And, uh, you know, you just want to talk about gas prices alone. One of the things we've talked about with Adam several times on the show, like you guys rival California now is in the top three highest gas prices in the country. That's wild. For for some place that just never experiences influxes like that, like Nevada, that's really got to be crushing all those families, especially with the summer months coming. You're going to have energy bills through the roof. You're going to have parents worrying whether or not they can afford to uh, get back and forth to work and maybe have to get childcare for their kids or maybe have to quit their jobs because they can't afford to do all both and, 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 you know, have somebody watch their kids as well. So um, I, I think a lot of the families should probably be resonating in your campaign where not only is it America first, but you're putting Nevada at the forefront as well. You know, and it's so unnecessary. That's the whole point. You know, you can sit here and you look. When President Trump, Trump was in office, we were energy independent and gas prices were uh, at $2 in some sense. Now it's over $4. I mean, it's all because of the policies that the far left and, and Biden have gone along with and the incredible government spending that has been uh, approved by people like Mark Amadam. He's a, he's a Republican in a safe Republican seat, the only one in the state of Nevada, and is very conservative. And he's out here voting like the Democrats do and causing this type of pain uh, to Nevada families. Uh, it, it is just horrendous. And somebody had to step up and run against him. I got to thank my wife for getting me in this race. She's one of the top political consultants in, in the entire country. She certainly is the top in Nevada. She, uh, her name's Amy Tarkanian. And she really uh, was pushing me to get in this race against Mark. She said somebody with the courage and conviction and fight had to get it, run against him. Probably couldn't have a better backer than her, to say the least. Yeah. Dan, do you have any other debates or forums coming up before the primary? And then can you give us the primary date after that? Sure. We have a, a, I'm not so sure if they're going to be debates or not, but Candace Forum, where we're going to talk and take questions. There's going to be one next Thursday at the Carson City uh, Central Committee. And then I, I'm not sure the date, but there's another one here in uh, Minden, where I live, uh, with the Republican Women's Group. But again, it's just a forum. Yeah. Uh, our election actually starts a week from Friday, a week from tomorrow, uh, is our early voting. And uh, they have, um, what is it, a 12 days, 13, 11 days of early voting. And then the election is June 14th. So everything's ramping up pretty fast. Uh, we've had two debates, Mark and I. And, you know, every time I bring up his message, Mark tries to cloud the issue so people don't uh, understand what's going on. He never denies it. Uh, now his big argument is, hey, I've been in Congress for so long. I could be on a powerful committee and I got all these national endorsements. Now, you listen to how stupid that sounds. Yeah. People are fed up with these establishment politicians. I think Mark's been in Washington, D.C. way too long because he doesn't understand. That's the exact message nobody wants. They don't want career politicians. They don't want people who are there just for the power. They certainly don't want uh, somebody there because they have some national organizations that endorse them. No, it makes a whole lot of sense. And, uh, 
you know, you just got to keep hitting those issues hard. You get, you sounds like, I mean, you've been around in Nevada. Your, your family is super well known. You know what it's like to put your hand on the, and, and feel the pulse of the people there. You've, you've made a really good, uh, you know, claim for it today on the show. And uh, I think if you keep doing the right thing, you're going to have big successes coming up here in the primary, which is, which leads me to my last point. We have a very interactive listenership. We've got a huge base of listenership in, in, in uh, Nevada. Adam Lexall can attest to that. And we wanted to be able to direct as much of them to help you, whether it be knocking on doors or doing, you know, uh, digital stuff online or directly donating to the campaign, which, listen, we don't donate to the GOP, to the establishment Republicans anymore. We find the candidates that want to, you know, champion the America First agenda and the Trump era policies, and we, we urge our listenership to uh, donate directly to them. So if you give us your information. Sure. My website's TARK, T-A-R-K, for F-O-R-N-V.com. So tark for nvcom that's for Nevada. And the difference between Adam and myself is, you know, Adam gets a lot of national money. He's running an open seat. Yep. Well, in the, in the primary, I'm running against an incumbent. He's got these two big fundraisers coming up with all the, the establishment people that he's done favors for. I rely upon people like your listenership to help me get our message out. If we get our message out, we win and we win going away. If we don't, you're going to be stuck with another two years and probably longer of this guy, Mark. Amaday. So if you go to the website, you can contribute there, tark4nv.com. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to come on with us and we'll live link those in the show descriptions. This is the America First candidate who's looking to represent Nevada too in the upcoming midterm elections. Primary dates, June 14th. Danny Tartanian, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. We've got two special guests, a little treat for our listenership. They're two of the five men-ish who make up the apparatus down there at human events. We've got the managing editor, Brett Hamachek, and for the first time on the show today, the senior contributor, Chris Barron. Thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Uh, happy to be on. Gentlemen, pleasure, to, pleasure to be here. I've been riding Chris's coattails now for a year and a half, so <laughs> it just keeps getting better. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm all set to go. I feel like I'm on a toboggan when I was a kid. Stop go it. ahead, Chris, lead me away. You were awesome <laughs> last time you were on, Brent. You better stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How you guys doing? So, what's going on with you guys? Not much, well, if you remember, I I, uh, I think the last time actually we had a back and forth was after I wrote uh, an op-ed about Oz, which I thought was going to get me drawn and quartered by fellow uh, conservatives when I made the case that hey, by the way, at the end of the day, I support Trump's endorsement of Dr. Oz, and then you know point out a lot of the same criticisms that were leveled at. Dr. Oz were criticisms that were leveled at Trump in 2015 and 2016. So uh, I was up late uh, last night watching the uh, watching the results. Uh, definitely turned out to be a nail biter in PA, and uh, looks like we still don't know who the Republican nominee is. Yeah, you want to know what? I want to stay in that thread for a second, Chris, because you, you know you make an excellent point. I, I've I've been opinionated on social media as what you know you typically do when when you're in political realm. But the fact of the matter is, here's my deal with Dr. Oz. Now, we go out and do a lot of research. In addition to that, we have a lot of contacts with people who are literally orbiting Donald Trump. Um, You know, his lawyer is a regular guest on our show. And we've talked to people, you know, I have a pretty good relationship with one of the guys in the inner circle, kind of tells me how it is when, when the narrative that's out there isn't really right. Now, now, whether that's like, correct or not, in the big scheme of things, that's up for debate. And that's where like political commentary and analysis comes in. But my whole thing was with this Dr. Oz thing. Yes. He has a lot of red flags, 
Uh, but I didn't see enough people out there. A lot of the pundits, the major influencers, really take the time to to kind of break it down and then spread out the red flags across the country, you know, maybe to a lot of the candidates, even some of the other Trump endorsements who may have had red flags and be like, listen, when it comes to you in the voter booth, you use your discernment. Donald Trump's yep. endorsing who he's endorsing. We all know there's a lot of different reasons, wide range of spectrum of reasons that he endorses people. And, uh, at the end of the day, those people are going to be representing you where you live. So where national commentary kind of comes in and really beat up Dr. Oz, it only really matters to the people in Pennsylvania, number one. And number two, like I said, I would have liked to see a little bit more spreading of the wealth of, like, crapping on people who, you know, there's a lot of other candidates in this country, some of them who Trump have endorsed, you know, that that raised some red flags. Like, I have some concerns about Vernon Jones. I had some concerns about J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance I've warmed up to a little bit because so many people that we interact with was with him on the campaign and they said this guy turned a corner like whatever he was doing back in 2015 2016 like there is receipts you all see it that was like my huge red flag in the beginning he's like i'm literally working with these guys every day we're out there barnstorming with them it's different and and you know we were told that when dr oz and donald trump met uh probably in like december he assured him two things carry out the america first agenda when he gets into the senate Vote no on Mitch McConnell for Senate leadership. Is that going to be as attractive as every other like MAGA person running in the Senate, like an Eric Greitens who's gun ho at everything, or an Adam Lexall who's like brings that business sense with him? No. But at the same time, if if he's carrying the party lines and is one more positive vote for America First policies, then okay, well you can compare him now then to the other two relatively qualified candidates there and talk about their red flags as well. So, yeah, and by, and by the way, like here's the thing with Oz for me, Trump's known Oz for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So this is somebody he's got an established relationship with. Like there, there's lots of folks that Trump endorses that I'm like, they're red flags. <laughs> and I'm like, man, who around them told him this was a good idea? This wasn't one of those ones where somebody's coming to Trump and, and, and they're like, you need to endorse Oz and here's why. And let me tell you about Oz. He's known Oz for 20 years. Yep. I also think it was difficult for some people to divorce Oz, the like TV guy from Oz, the political guy. Yeah. Um, and and I understand that. And, and, and Oz got a- asked a lot of tough questions about things that he said on his TV show, mm-hmm. as he should have been asked. But he answered every one of those questions. And at the end of the day, I started this cycle very hesitant when it came to Oz. I, I was not I was not a fan but people who I knew who who got to know Oz very well, who had worked with Oz before, all said this is a really good guy. And at the end of the day, when Trump, who's known him for 20 years, said, you want to know what? I'm putting my stamp of approval on Dr. Oz. He's the guy that we need in Pennsylvania. I said, OK, like he's not perfect. I don't think any of the candidates in this race are perfect. So all no. other things being equal, if Trump believes this is the best person to carry on Trump's agenda, I, I, and he's known the guy for 20 years. I don't know how at that point I can say, well, I, actually, I know better than Trump does when it comes to what Trump believes. So, I, you know, I, I, I think that I, I think that that, that Oz is not going to be Mitt Romney. Um, he's probably not going to be perfect. But hell, I mean, we don't have many perfect politicians by definition. Um, so at right. the end of the day, I think he's going to be a solid Republican vote. And if he carries uh, Trump's agenda forward and he votes against Mitch McConnell as majority leader win. Hell yeah. I'm all in. Yeah. I mean, you just have to look at, you made two excellent points there. How many celebrities 
since 2015 who have been friends with Donald Trump, let's just say for 20 or 30 years, completely and publicly disowned him. Dr. Oz never did. Their their relationship remained intact throughout this time. And Dr. Oz had every opportunity as like, you know, a Hollywood star. And, And you made that second point, Chris, which I thought was really good. A lot of people don't understand that. Dr. Oz is a doctor who was an actor on his own show. Yeah. Yeah. All of these people who run his show gave him his topics, fed him like how we're going to spin this. We're going to make it sad. We're going to make it like, you know, and and it's just like he was acting in his, it's not like he was performing open heart surgery on his show. He was talking about issues that stay at home moms, disabled veterans, people who watch Dr. Oz at like the middle of the day when everybody else is at work or school, like the audience that he caters to. And, And he is not, and acting anymore. Now he switched over to politics. So obviously his true convictions are going to come out probably much to the dismay of some of his, you know, former viewership. But at the same time, like you got to give the guy a little bit of a chance. Like we already said, I don't know if I'm ever going to be like completely comfortable with him. Like you said, I don't know if he's going to be like super ultra MAGA, like when he gets into Washington, DC, but if he upholds the, the Trump agenda and then votes no on Mitch McConnell, that's just another Senate seat that we don't have to worry about. Yep. Absolutely. Agree. So should I uh, should I jump in here with the thought? I, I, want, I want to hear it because your your commentary right now is going to let me know how absolutely lit your guys uh, your board <laughs> Zoom meetings are because between Charlie Quirk, Jeff Webb, you two, and then Jack Pasobic, who's you know kind of championed a different narrative in regards to Doctor mm-hmm. Oz, I can only imagine uh, some creative uh, conversations that you guys might be having. Well, I, uh, I have a, a scattered series of thoughts, uh, which is typical for me. It's sort of the fragments of a broken mind about to turn 60. But uh, first of all, I think it's fascinating that anybody pays attention to who Donald Trump endorses. It's not about Trump himself being good or bad. It's that he makes really terrible HR picks and has ever since he started in the world of politics. I mean, so Dr. Oz might be a good choice, might not be. I mean, out in Wyoming, the woman he picked to run against Liz Cheney is Liz Cheney. I mean, this is like the same person. We don't even know what he's doing. He had some really solid candidates uh, that were vying for that post and uh, that were uh, one of whom I know personally, who is a real what you would call a mega candidate. And yet he drafted a woman who wasn't even planning to run, who's just an establishment Republican. Right. So. She's like Liz Cheney light. Of course, anybody who would be Liz Cheney is Liz Cheney lighter. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's a physical attribute. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I couldn't resist that cheap, cheap shot at Liz Cheney. Um, then w- with regard to the all of these processes. So I'm a guy who's, you know, makes his living talking about politics and writing about politics, who's terribly, terribly bored with politics. I mean, the political races are so are run between people usually of varying levels of low integrity, moderate intelligence and high degrees of corruption. So I had a chance once a few years ago down in Florida to talk with a good friend of mine who's kind of Mr. Florida. He's connected to anybody and everybody down there in the world of politics and and powerful folks. And he was just mesmerized over some stupid thing that po- was going on in policy. And he's saying, Brent, why don't these politicians get it? Why? How can they not understand? And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, let's play a game here. I said, you kind of know everybody in the state of Florida who matters, right? 
He said, you bet I do. And I said, all right, real quick, I want you to put together a list in your head of the 20 smartest people you know. Just kind of think about it. And he thinks for a second. He said, okay. And I said, all right, how many of them are politicians? And he starts to smile. He says, oh, yeah, you're right. I get it. <laughs> so so our obsession with all this stuff is pretty interesting. The other, the other part of it is that we're living in this world of litmus tests. And the problem is we're not really exactly sure what color it's supposed to turn to. Yeah. So we, we have, it's really this test for purity. So we're all trying to run around and find the candidate who agrees with us on everything. Well, I don't know about you guys. But the only person who agrees with me all the time is me, and I'm not all that smart. So we, we've, we sort of slice and thin slice these different candidates and positions and look at them in different ways. And at the end of the day, they're mostly corrupt. They're mostly idiots. All that matters is, are they mostly on our team or not? And most of the serious battles we have to fight are actually not being fought inside the halls of the political realm. They're outside of the world of politics, in corporate boardrooms, college campuses, mainstream media, social media, and in our own communities, right? So if we could get all that stuff right, the politicians we choose at a national level would follow. So... Uh, there's all sorts of gloom, doom, and differing perspectives. I, I, I expect no, I expect nothing but gloom and doom from you, Brent. Like, <laughs> right. literally, like literally, if, if if you're ever having a really great day and you'd like to kind of just have things level down one for you, call Brent up and let him know <laughs> that you're really having a great day and the sun is shining, and Brent will figure out some way to convince you that it's actually bad. Hey, so. when I speak in public, I always want my theme music when I'm introduced to be Leonard Cohen's You Want It Darker. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 my song. I love You Want It Darker. Yeah. So uh, anyway, no, but I, I will I, I I will say, Brent, that you actually do make a good point about the fact that you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to most politicians, and I admit I come from this differently because my start in the political realm was working on campaigns, was working for members of Congress. So, so like that's part of my DNA. Right. So, so I get jazzed about this stuff. I get jazzed right. about the horse race. I get, I, I can't not, you know, it's like every cycle I have to convince myself that I'm not going to work on a political campaign. And, and I'm like the junkie. Like, I, like it, it's like literally I have to like not take calls from people who I know are going to offer me roles because I, I, I can't do it. I get so bought into it. And like I said, I, I, I know that about myself. But I do think one of the things that you said that we should recognize is that when we're talking about elections, they, they are important, um, but there are limits to the extent to what politicians can do. And we saw that with President Trump, who, yep. by the way, I think was the best president of my lifetime. And as Brent, you like to point out, within 100 days of Biden being president, almost everything that Trump done, had done was wiped away by the right. new administration. And that the bigger battles, the ones that are longer lasting and actually are going to have more impact on what the next 20 years look like, are actually being waged in corporate boardrooms, on college campuses, in our battle with the legacy media. And so I think you are you are right. Like We, we sometimes get, I do, get caught up in the sexiness of the horse race. You know, right. but there's the defined start and a finish and you get a winner and you get a loser. And like today you get to look back and say, what went right? What went wrong? Where were the, like the, the, the turns and twists that made the difference in this campaign. Whereas there's no defined end date in the battle to stop like, you know, woke 
the woke agenda from taking over corporate boardrooms. There's, there's no defined, did we win or did we lose when it comes to the hearts and minds of the next generation? They're getting poisoned in our academic institutions. There's yeah. no way of saying like we won. It's not like the New York Times is going to announce tomorrow we're shutting down. We admit we've been lying all this time. You know, like, so it, it is it is more amorphous, but you're right that those battles are infinitely more important than these kind of individual horse races. Yeah, let's uh, just for fun, let's play with the 2022 election for a minute. Let's assume that Republicans win the House and the Senate. Okay, so what will that actually mean? So there, there is good news. The good news is, is that for the next two years, Joe Biden will not be able to pass any laws. Shouldn't be able to, assuming that, you know, we don't fill the Senate <laughs> chamber filled with, you know, Mitt Romney's and the House chamber filled with Liz Cheney's. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, but he, should, he won't be able to pass any laws. So he'll still write executive orders, yep. uh, but he won't be able to pass any legislation. Now, Republicans won't be able to pass any legislation either. Uh, because they're not going to get two thirds in the House and they're not going to get two thirds in the Senate. And there's nothing they can pass that Joe Biden would sign. So we, we will get a two year long stalemate. That's good. I mean, that's fine. We'll we'll take that. Understand that is all we get. Nothing else. And as I like to point out, four years ago today, the Republicans owned the Senate, the House and the White House. And look where we are now. Yep. So. There's a danger. There's a danger in the Republicans winning the House and Senate. And the danger is, and especially for people that have money on our side, and this is changing, I think, just based on some of the things I get to do and be involved in. I think it's changing, but it's slowly. People with money on our side focus far too much on elections. So they want to spend their money on candidates and campaigns. So they'll spend their money there. And we'll win the House and the Senate. And then they'll say, look, see, that was successful. That's the way to spend money. And uh, people who are activists who are fired up about elections will say there, look, we won the election. Look what we've done. We reversed course. Reverse course from what? We had all three bodies of, uh, of federal government a few years ago. We reversed nothing. So our, this fixation we have on elections is dangerous because they aren't trends, they're data points. And unless you work on the other underlying pieces within our social structure to try to fundamentally change the way people view being an American, what it means to be free, uh, understanding private property rights, individual liberty obligation, all that other crap, Right. Unless you work really hard to change that, the most you'll be able to affect is a change one way or another in a legislative body every couple of years. Yeah. And those do nothing. So beware a November victory for Republicans. It could be really, really bad news. See, look, you, you want I, I'm going to be happy in November. I'm not going to let you ruin this for me, Dr. Death. I'm going to try. I'm not talking to you the day after the election. Don't call. I'm celebrating still. I was showing up at your doorstep. <laughs> a bouquet of dead flowers <laughs> wishing you happy election right. day. <laughs> right. No, just, you, just in case you were having a good day. Brent, you know, you, you do make an excellent point, though, because one of the things we run the risk of doing is now we have two years. Okay, so we stymied the Biden administration. They can't pass any laws. You'll see 
uh, the cabinet members doing all the crappy stuff that they've been doing so far. The DOJ will continue to be weaponized. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas will continue to open the border because you don't necessarily need laws to, to pass those things administratively. And it's just policies. The administrative state will flourish as they did, uh, you know, in the in the second two years of the Trump administration after they got some of those real crap, uh, like, you know, uh, Paul Ryan and them out of there. But, but the fact of the matter is, is now you give Democrats, and this is where the bad focus comes, you focus back onto the election, so 2024 general election now. Now you're focusing on, okay, the Republicans took back the House and Senate, and look, they've done nothing for the American people the last two years. You know, they haven't changed inflation, they haven't lowered your gas prices, all they want to do is stop Joe Biden, and then they'll start creating history like they like to do if they say it enough times it becomes facts and they'll be like oh joe biden was about to turn the corner on on jobs and 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 you know inflation was going to come down and gas prices were going to go low and we were going to beat russia and the, the, the republicans came in and just ruined it in the midterms in 2022 and then you have to work twice as hard to to get like a, an even bigger majority in the uh in the house and senate and hopefully the presidency in 2024 too so there, there are a lot of risks you can run there and, and you make an excellent point even though it is it is kind of doomy and gloomy <laughs> right. Well, no, and like, and just to put, I'll push back a little bit and just say that, yes, there are risks, but the fact is we are a country that's teetering on the edge right now. Yes, that is a fact. Biden, Biden's policies are, have been way more destructive than I thought possible. Like I, I had, I thought that he was going to be a bad president. I thought democratic control of the house and Senate was going to be bad. It, it has far, it's been far worse than I could have ever possibly dreamed so on some level, we need a triage here. We need to stop the bleeding with the patient. And, yep. and we're the patient. The, the United States is the patient and we need to triage. We need Republicans to step in and at least stop Biden from the, the, the most of his of excesses. You're right. We're not going to be able to stop what he does administratively. And the only way we can do that is winning back the White House in 2024. But we at least have to, to, to have a Congress who won will be an impediment to Biden. And two, we'll actually hold this administration accountable. Because the fact is, is Mayorkas should be impeached. Yep. He should be impeached for an absolute dereliction of duty and a failure to do his job. And Republicans can and should hold the Biden administration's feet to the fire on this stuff. We should be asking the tough questions. Congress should be reasserting itself when it comes to oversight. Instead of a J6 committee, we need to have a committee that, uh, where's our Southern Border Committee? Yeah. You know? Like that's that's what Republicans can do. And so the question for me will be, do do Republicans actually have the balls to do what Democrats would do in this in this position? Because Democrats are never afraid to use every weapon at hand. And I give them credit for that. I despise the Democrats and everything they stand for. But I will give them credit. They never bring a knife to a gunfight. No. It feels like with Republicans, that's all we ever do, that we, we get into power and suddenly we, we want the New York Times to like us. We want the Washington Post to like us. We want to be seen as the, the nice guys who are reaching across the, the aisle, trying to bring in centrist Democrats, finding a way to work together. Screw that. We should yep. be kneecapping this administration. The two years of Republicans in control should be doing nothing but kneecapping this administration and holding them accountable and exposing what they have done in these first two years. No, that, that is a good point. And, and I, I think one of the things that goes into that whole mix there, you guys, I think everybody could admit that the four of us here, this is a different breed of political candidates in a lot of these races than we've seen before. There are actually people who are, you know, they're actually fighters. You want to talk about like Joe Kent, 
and people like that, they are really ready to go down and be like, I don't care what the lobbyists say, the establishment says, the administrative state says, I don't care if I'm going to be a junior senator or a freshman uh, House representative. Like, I'm going to go in there and make noise. If if this is the way it is, I'm just going to go on TV and tell everybody about it. I'm going to tell all the newspapers. I'm going to expose all this stuff. I, I think it will start to see a little bit of the wool get pulled back if, if enough of these candidates get in. And uh, you could tell by how active Kevin McCarthy has been in trying to stop some of these America First candidates from getting over the finish line that uh, they're a little bit worried about that for their mutual interests. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, look, look at look at how powerful like a handful of members who are willing to stand up and fight no matter what can be. They strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committees as an attempt to silence her and make her less relevant. And the fact is, all they did was make her more powerful. Yep. I would argue at this point, in terms of shaping public opinion, which is really what matters, Marjorie Taylor Greene is infinitely more powerful than Kevin McCarthy is. Yeah. And you know, she's a caucus of one or two or three people maybe in the House at this point. And the fact is, is I hope that we make Kevin McCarthy's job infinitely harder. Yep. I hope that there, instead of there being three or four Marjorie Taylor Greens, that we have 10 or 12 or 15 of them. And that the that that we actually start to see a real pushback by members who don't feel like they owe anything to the system, who didn't get here because they worked their way up through the establishment. They didn't get here because, you know, they had checks stroked for them by PACs and you know, big money donors, like, you know, the Joe Kent's of the world. Yeah. Bring these guys come here and raise a little hell. Yeah, they, they really need to. And, uh, you know, I think that could be a real tipping point for the Republican Party. It's like, I don't want to see Senate Republicans United getting up behind a podium and then Ted Cruz or, or Mitch McConnell go out and talk softly anymore about all the things they're upset <laughs> about that the Biden, like those days are over. It's yeah. e- it's either fight now or you're going to enjoy it for two years of Joe Biden not passing any laws and then we're really going to lose this country in 2024 because we'll wind up with somebody like Gavin Newsom, God forbid, mm. be the president of the United States. And, and at that point, it's over. Right. No. Yeah. Absolutely. And like we think it's bad now and it is bad. It is very bad. But the truth is it could actually get much worse. I'm going to channel my inner Dr. Death Brent here for a second. <laughs> it's bad and it's probably going to get worse because, look, as, as terrible as Biden is. The fact is, is that I, Biden is a stooge. He's a puppet for mid-level bureaucrats and like, you know, 30-something-year-old Harvard grads who are more interested in pronouns than they are in the stock market. Mm. Uh, but he's not really a true believer. <laughs> the fact is, we could get a true believer, you know? We could get somebody in there who isn't just a stooge for the hard left, but is one of them. Yep. You know, we could get a Kamala Harris. We could get a Gavin Newsom. We could get somebody who wouldn't just kind of fumble his way into ruining the country, but would come in set to, I am going to dramatically alter the DNA of this country. I'm going to do everything in my power to change who we are as a nation. So it definitely can get worse. Brett, do you want to, do you want to, yeah, I want want you to comment on Chris's commentary acting as you. (laughs) (laughs) oh he's 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 nowhere near dark enough look um i i think that um my my dear dear friend and younger brother as we we like to say is um underestimating uh joe biden in a sense um in in especially in this context of being a true believer so we talk about somebody being a true believer but now let let's get specific and say what do we mean well here's what i would mean so I'm not putting words at all in Chris's mouth. 
<laughs> but I would say that Joe Biden is an absolute true believer in what is the fascist model of socialism. So it's a model that we saw coming out of Europe in the early part of the 1900s. It involves building a very, very strong, powerful central government and having large industries get very siloed, very tall, so that government and industry can work together to plan, organize, and manage economic, political, and social activity. That's what socialism is. Right. That's that's the fascist model. Now, in this country, we have to be afraid of the fascist model of socialism because it's the one most likely to survive. The Marx model doesn't work well here because the Marx model, where socialism transitions to a communist state, uh, gives up all the trappings and powers and privilege of ruling, you know, power, profit, privilege, prestige, the four, the four P's of politics. And so in a Marxist movement, you start to lose those. But in a fascist movement, you get to keep them and strengthen them. So that's the model that we've been building here in this country for up to a century. Joe Biden has always been a strong believer in it. And that model isn't likely to fall apart, even if he, you know, no matter who the president is or who's in the House and Senate, we have a lot of Republicans who are very much in favor of that fascist model of socialism. They like big government and big industry being wed together. They might express it differently, but there's almost not a dime's worth of difference between Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden when it comes to wanting to wield power, profit from a system, have large industries join with government to do things. Right. They might do different things, but the model's the same. Yeah. So if uh, of course I want Republicans to win in November, I wouldn't want my remarks to make it sound like I don't think it's important to win. It is important to stalemate this thing. But if they do win, they need to act like they've already been there. Understand that this is an extraordinarily long game. If they want to come to Washington and yell and scream and hold hearings for two years and stamp their feet, they're not going to be doing anything to help save the country. Donald Trump came to Washington and said, stamped his feet for four years. And look where we are. Yeah, It's a long game. It's so much more than elections. And that's elections matter. Uh, they are a way to control some immediate trends and activities, stop some things like this voting legislation that they've been wanting to pass, like mandating abortion nationwide. I joke, I exaggerate on purpose, but so you can stop those things with elections. But we're dealing against a much, much stronger, much more fully developed force than just who wins office in 2020 or 22 or any other year. Yeah, that, that whole apparatus is set up to, uh, it's like interchangeable parts. And if you're not blowing up enough stuff, getting up there and actually fighting, then those parts are just going to be there waiting for the next piece to just nicely fit in. And if they're like worse, and I mean more evil or more, you know, counterproductive to the, to anything that we need to do to get this country back on the right track, it's going to go to hell in a handbasket a whole lot faster than it is right now. And it's, yep. been, it's been a pretty whirlwind 16 months so far. Yeah, we've got a bunch of people right now that are trying to burn it down. But if we get enough people in there that will let them burn it down, then we're in a whole other ballgame. Yeah. Big. Yeah, no. And and, 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 and and by the way, again, I want to agree with Brent that the elections are like, we're not losing because of elections. 
we're losing in this country because of all of the other cultural battles and cultural, you know, fights that we haven't even engaged on, you know, and, and you see, like when we start digging into it a little bit, like you know, I, I, I live here, you know, in Virginia, like, you know, a Republican got elected statewide in Virginia because all of a sudden there was an interest about what was going on in the schools here. Yeah. When people had their kids home during COVID and they realized, wait, what is this? What am I hearing? What is my fourth grader being taught? Like, and all of a sudden there was this like push because we have turned a blind eye to that stuff for decades. For decades, we've let our public school systems become a playground for the left in the same way that we let them do it to our academic institutions, you know, in colleges and universities. We simply gave those battles up. Like, I don't know a single person these days who graduates from, from high school and goes to college and comes out of college a better person. No. Not one. Every single one of, everyone I know, I like, of the next generation, everyone who's gone to college, doesn't matter whether they're going to like a uh, like traditionally like crazy liberal college or just any real run of the mill state college, they're coming out worse people because th- these have turned into ideological factories that are churning out brainwashed young adults. Mm-hmm. And now we've seen that peter down to our public school system. And that's just one example of where these huge battles are actually going to be won and lost. You know, there was a time where we thought of business as a traditionally reliable Republican and conservative group that like the Chamber of Commerce and Wall Street, these are these are pro-Republican groups. They're not. You know, you look at the you look at the, 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 the votes from from last time. The overwhelming majority of billionaires in this country voted for Joe Biden. Yep. Did they vote for Joe Biden because they thought Joe Biden was going to raise their taxes? No, they voted for Joe Biden for the reason that that Brent mentioned, because they they understand that the the way forward for them long term is this like partnership with the government where big government and super big corporations are in charge. That that was Mussolini's dream of fascism, a marriage of the state and of big corporations. Yep. And that, that's why these people have turned that it's not because they think that Biden is going to be raising their tax. It's because they think that Biden is going to create a structure which will enable them to continue to wield power for as long as they want. And that's a that's a two-way thread I, I kind of want to run with because I want to ask you guys two questions and then get your takes on it. So just something that lines up almost equally uh, coming from this ad- administration, I mean, I know the school thing's been been happening for decades now, but something that's kind of been reoccurring since uh, about 2015, 2016, is the whole white nationalism thing. And, uh, you know, that's just something, you know, we saw it all the way up through this weekend where, where Joe Biden went to Buffalo yesterday. Obviously, there was a horrific event that happened up there by someone that had a lot of problems going on who displayed all the red flags that, that should have confirmed, you know, concerned law enforcement, who was aware of the situation and the threats that had been made and all this other stuff and just let it happen again. But consequently, over the weekend, there was also a large riot in Chicago. Uh, there was, you know, dozens of people killed there over the weekend. I believe there was uh, close to 80 people shot. And then you, you had another what, what, you know, by definition is mass shooting out here where we are in Southern California in Laguna, where someone who, you know, was of one 
ethnic descent walked into a church of another with the intent to mass kill people and shot five or six people and I believe killed one before he was restrained. But all of that stuff was ignored. However, just because, you know, what happened in Buffalo happened to be done by a white person, regardless of how they kind of spin his manifesto and his ideology and all that other stuff. And Joe Biden goes out yesterday and instead of saying, you know, this was a racist event by someone who had problems and, you know, we kind of messed up, he just turns it into, a, you know, white nationalism is like the root cause of everything that's wrong with this country. Mm. That's why your gas prices are high. That's why the economy sucks. That's why the borders open. It's all because of this. Wait, now it's not Putin's fault? Well, it only only when it's Putin's fault. <laughs> oh, right. But yeah, yeah, what do you guys think of that whole narrative? I mean, it's something like uh, we all know Barack Obama was the most racially divisive president in probably the history of our country. Uh, You know what what happened with the uh, defund the police movement after after that stuff that went down in Baltimore just kind of spiraled and they've harnessed that magic and we have not been able to shake it as a uh, as a nation. You know, it it affects everybody when they start to talk about that stuff because it makes people who don't have these kind of like fibers in their being start to feel weird about other people just because they hear it so much. Uh, you know, they've weaponized the DOJ with it uh, against parents and stuff like that. They've weaponized the Department of Homeland Security uh, in, in kind of the same manner. And it's it's something that really needs to be addressed and, and handled in like the most appropriate manner possible. So, Chris, what are you doing? Paper, scissors, rock on who's going to go first here? You go, you go ahead, comrade. <laughs> Well, look, the the success of these kinds of narratives is directly related to the degrees of stupidity and evilness contained in the listener, Mm -hmm. because you have to be either an absolute imbecile or just purely evil to buy any of this crap. So to the extent that you're one or the other, those narratives that uh, Biden threw out in Buffalo, then they work. And there's not much you can do about that. Right. I mean, we're not a nation filled with critical thinkers. We're not a nation that's particularly strong. We're not a nation that's particularly committed to individual liberty, self-determination anymore. We're a nation of victims. We're a nation of takers, right? We're a nation of people who try to find ways to get even with others. So if I can create myself, if I can define myself somehow or other as having been aggrieved, it will then give me the rationalization to be able to take things from and harm others, sort of who we are. This is moral relativism on the loose in this country today. And when Joe Biden stands up and speaks, by the way, barely speaks, I don't watch him much, but I mean, I, I did watch a chunk of that uh, talk he gave and I'm going to see us like this and he's, you know, his mouth hardly moves. And I mean, good Lord, I feel like I need to be trying to force oatmeal into his lips through a plunger to get him to have nutrition. But uh, in any event, um, when when he stands up and says the kinds of things that he says, and what he's really appealing to is some large population of people who listen to that and say, yeah, yeah, he's he's right. Yeah, there's there's evil people there that they've done bad things to me or bad things have been done to my family. So yeah, now I get to go get those people. And the president just said I could. And that's the alpha and omega of the rational intellectual construct they have. That's what we're dealing with. And that's not easy to overcome. Well, and by the way, I would, I would add to this that if, if we lived in a rational place, there would be heads rolling at the FBI and the Department of Justice in the yeah. wake of what happened in Buffalo. They can track down every single grandma who walked through the Capitol building, 
but they can't stop a guy who basically stood on the street corner with a sign that said, I plan on shooting people. You know, like, I, I mean, it is absolutely disgraceful. And it shows just how lost our FBI and our DOJ are, just how much they have run down this political and ideological rabbit hole. I mean, these are the same people who told us that domestic terrorism was the number one threat to our country, the number one threat. Right. And then they're actually not doing anything about real domestic terrorists. Yep. Because when they meant domestic terrorists, they didn't actually mean somebody who's going to go shoot somebody. What they meant was they meant somebody who was going to say, I thought that 2020 was stolen. Like those are the domestic terrorists. Those are the people that we absolutely have to round up and silence at any cost. Or parents like, at a PTA meeting. <laughs> absolutely. It, it is It is just unbelievable. I mean, first off, I don't believe our number one issue is domestic terrorism. Not by a long shot. Of course, it's ridiculous. But even if you believe that, wouldn't you be outraged that the, the people who are supposed to be in charge of what you claim is the number one issue did nothing to stop a domestic terrorist from going and killing a bunch of people despite all of the red flags that were there? Wouldn't you be asking... What the hell is going on in our FBI? What's going on in our DOJ? What went wrong here? And instead of having those kind of reflective questions that could actually prevent a mass murder from happening in the future, instead, you prop you know, Weekend at Bernie's up in <laughs> Buffalo to mumble away and accuse everybody in this country who disagrees with him of being a white supremacist. And, and that's, so that's what this is about. It's about finger pointing and it's about trying to use your deaths other people's deaths for your political advantage it's ghoulish yeah, yeah. political capital dare, dare i dare i sound too much like a, a non-committal university professor uh in in saying what i'm about to say i don't mean to but it might come out that way uh i actually so i mean i'm on record all over the country and writing and in talks is terms of calling our FBI very, very similar now at this point to the Stasi or the NKBD. Mm -hmm. I do not think, by the way, it is just leadership. It is the agents in the field. Yep. If they don't like what's going on and agree with it, then they should resign. The great yep. throw proposition, right? If you think what you're doing is wrong, resign. They don't resign. They're in the field and they're carrying out these orders. Something about Nuremberg flashes in my head. <laughs> but the, the issue, as much as I detest them, and I do, and I see them as enemies of the people, truly. Uh, with regard to the issue of the shooter in Buffalo and uh, you know what, what happened beforehand or didn't happen, it, I got some different thoughts on this because to use an overused term, uh, this notion of prior restraint is a slippery slope. It actually really is a slippery slope. And it is so difficult. Look, I don't think the people in our FBI or Homeland Security do their jobs on a re regular basis. I think they're they're turning into a form of domestic terrorist. But pretend they were doing their job. I'm not exactly what you sure what I'm not sure. Excuse me, toy boat, toy boat. Yeah. I'm not sure what you do to handle this notion of prior restraint with people who are clearly mentally disturbed who throw up on social media instead of just in their living room, like in the good old days, uh, these things that they want to do. Because if you take a routine trip along Twitter on any particular day, you'll see all sorts of vile crap, especially yep. coming from team left. But most of them don't go out and kill people. So who do you prior restrain? What's my point? I actually don't have one. 
<laughs> Thank you Brian. for the fact that it's really, really complicated uh, when you're looking at notions of prior restraint in a country built on the notion of not exercising prior restraint. Well, and I, I don't disagree with that. But what I'm saying is, is that like New York State has red flag laws. They passed these laws and the, the we've got a DOJ that says that the number one threat to this country is domestic terrorism. Like, like, and I, I'm I'm not saying that we should. I'm not I'm not for red flag laws. Largely, I'm not for prior restraint. But the fact is, these things even exist, and they're saying that this is the number one issue, and they still can't do anything about it. They got their they got the laws that they wanted to be able to do something about this. They say that domestic terrorism is the number one issue. And again, to my point, they can find every grandma who wandered into the Capitol building was led into the Capitol building on January 6th. They can show up at their houses with guns drawn, with, you know, military, you know, military uh, equipment, like every, any of that. But here we actually have an example of what they say that there is the number one threat. And they can't even do anything about they don't do anything about it. And instead of asking the questions, what can we do differently? What did we miss? Is there something we could have done instead of asking those questions, which are the types of questions that I think rational people would ask, ask after something like this. Instead, they immediately figure out how do we grab our hands into the blood and spread it around and use it to our political advantage. And that's the part of this that to me is not only like ghoulish, it's also, you know, it, 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 it's symptomatic to me of a system that's completely and totally broken. Well, let me go further. So it's not, I not only do I agree with you, I, I think it's worse than that. And it's not about a system. You know, systems are funny things. You can't punch them in the shoulder or, you know, pinch, pinch them on the bottom. They don't really exist, right? Systems are people. Here's something that ought to piss some people off. I bet I'm willing to actually wager anything, although they'll deny it because they'll lie to themselves and others, that most, the vast majority of Team Left members were excited to hear the news about the shooting in Buffalo. Your average run-of-the-mill Team Left person was thrilled. And I can assure you that everybody in the White House was doing a Snoopy dance, yep. maybe yep. in a stall in the bathroom, so nobody saw them, but they were doing a Snoopy dance. They were like, oh, thank God, look what we have. Let's use this to go after our opponents. They love this stuff. Might be why Homeland Security and FBI don't pay much attention. Maybe this is like Condide, where uh, Pangloss said to Condide, when he was watching a, uh, somebody being forced to walk the plank in the harbor, he said, Condita, it is good in this man's Navy to execute an admiral every once in a while so as to encourage the others. Well, maybe that's what this was about, right? So uh, let's, let's have a mass shooting happen, then we'll use it for a political advantage. These are monstrous people. And what we're really seeing is not a decay of systems or institutions. It's human nature bursting loose. Yep. This, again, is just what we are. So we're out of our cage and anything goes and uh, no rational thought, no checks and balances. Forget about government, no checks and balances inside of ourselves. And uh, this is what we get. Yeah, they use the, the political capital to foment everything up when like, OK, this is going to be something that's good for our case. doesn't matter how many people died. We're just going to run with this and be super happy that it happened. And then along the same lines with like the red flag laws and stuff. Those things are an open-ended, just 
administrative thing just to go after whoever they want. Right. And it's way too much work to go after everybody who falls under the category of a dangerous terrorist or something like that, unless they're, you know, the guy that you're already after. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, By the way, and like, and this, this, this proves that these red flag laws don't even work. No. Yeah. No, like this, is like I, I say after every one of these mass shootings, if you can tell me, propose the law, I'm willing to listen to it, that specifically would have prevented this tragedy, this, this specifically would have prevented this tragedy, like happy to have a conversation about it. It's, they never can do that. It's always this, this amorphous idea that somehow it's easier to buy a gun than it is to vote. It's easier to buy a gun than it is to do this or that. It's like, like the people are standing on street corners, handing out guns, like candy. <laughs> oh, like maybe, everybody come maybe get in Chicago. one. Yeah. Maybe in Chicago. Uh, yeah. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, that's actually true. <laughs> um, but like, to, you know, so again, it's, it, it is this, and I guess this is a kind of depressing commentary on 21st century human nature that we see this and we see the other side action. And I, you're right, Brent. I think there were people all across the left who were thrilled with the shooting the moment they found out that it was a white person. Yep. The moment, right. I, and I knew, I said at the time, I was like, we'll know immediately whether or not this is a white guy. Oh, yeah. Because if it's not a white guy, this is going to memory hold and we'll never hear about it again. It's like in DC, just a few weeks ago, there was a guy, a shooter, who took out like six or seven people in downtown DC. Yep. Uh, that was a, a Hispanic shooter. So we have never heard about it and since he, then. He was live, he was live streaming himself killing people. And, yes, and and not a peep. I mean, he had a full like he, he sniper nest. I, he must have said, "I love Joe Biden" or something while he was recording. He, he right, right. Have, yeah, he must have really loved him. So, so, and so instead, we have we have to have conversations. We have to pretend that what the issue here is really like. Oh, is it, it's it's Tucker Carlson. Mm. It's it's Tucker Carlson. This is you know, is it was inspired by Tucker. We really need to get Tucker Carlson off of the air. I mean, it, it's almost not making any like not even pretending anymore that this is about what they're saying it's about like this is just like oh how do we use this opportunity to punish political opponents yeah chuck schumer went out and said his name like five times on in in, in the hall of the senate in his little spiel that he gave last week i'll never let a good crisis go to waste of course right well like go ahead chris i'm sorry no no i i like i i to me it is, it is, I, and I try to be the glass half full guy here with, with Brent, who is the glass <laughs> half empty. But this is one of those times where I think that you're probably, you're probably right. And it's, it's, it, it's hard to, it's hard to look at the people who are exploiting this and think that they are anything but just bad people. Like this isn't people who are, who are mis, you know, who, who mean well, they don't mean well. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They know what they're doing is trying to use the tragic deaths of of these folks in Buffalo to a political advantage, and even worse than that, to silence political opponents who have nothing to do with the tragedy, yep. and nothing to do with whatsoever. Tucker Carlson had nothing to do with this lunatic. There's nothing in his manifest. Nothing. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that this is an opportunity to take out a political opponent, and so it's it's hard to it's hard to say that these are anything but bad people. All right. So uh, since I made half the country. Uh, mad at me a minute ago by saying that all Democrats were happy about the shooting. Let me try to get everybody pissed off at me. And let's, <clears throat> instead of the glance being hassle, <clears throat> let me pour it out all over the table. Is it Fresca? So, uh, <laughs> the Fresca, yeah, I could literally pour out Fresca. <laughs> 
Look, not only not only do I think our humanness has run wild now, uh, I do not believe for a moment that it's confined to the team left no. folks. Mm-mm. It's the team. Le- it's the team right folks too. Just as much. Here's the here's the mistake we make. We like to think that if somebody voted for Trump, if they if they believe in private property rights, if they think taxes should be lower, we'd like to think, wow, see, that's a better person than the one who voted for Biden, uh, thinks property should be communally owned and taxes should be at 90 (laughs) percent. They must be a better person. No, they're not. Uh, They agree with us on particular issues of policy, but it has nothing to do with what they're capable of at the human level. I have watched, especially over the last two years, having had an opportunity to be more closely involved in grassroots political activities and watching the people that put them together, I have seen some of the most despicable, unethical under any system, by the way, people talk about ethics. And then you say, well, what system are you talking about? They look at you like you have two heads. They don't even understand there's such a thing. Under any system of ethics, I have watched people behave as absolute monsters, doing terrible things to one another. And guess what? They voted just like all of us do. Mm -hmm. We're no better than they are. And one of the things that is probably the most tragic thing in American history that can't be reversed is the fact that we have two political parties, two that matter. And the reason that is, is that once we became a two-party system, we had people needing to choose sides. And once they needed to choose sides, they needed to compete. They needed to draw lines. They had to have clear disagreement. They could no longer have conversation. And it's devolved us to this point now. So we're not a bunch of good guys against bad guys. We're bad guys against bad guys cheering for different types of policies. So our folks is just, are just as bad as they are. No, I, I- you know what? That makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's it's one of the big things that's that's wrong with this country right now, direction-wise. And it's going to take a long time to kind of mend that that whole narrative and, and, and get us back on the right track. I do want to kind of get us on a little bit lighter note before we cut with you guys. Something This our- wasn't light? I- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was quietly slitting my wrist here. Oh, there you go. <laughs> where, Perfect. Where, where I live, this is stand-up comedy. Sorry. <laughs> we, we all okay, let's together. get lighter. We have to get together at some point, and I guess we could drink frescas and, and, and beers. Frescas yeah. and beers. Um, you know, something our listenership asked us about, last time Brent was on, it was about a month and a half ago, maybe a little bit longer, he teased some big changes happening down at, at human events. We come to find out shortly thereafter, uh, earlier in the month, you guys did a little uh, combination going on there with uh, Post Millennial and really yep. diversified the reach, the content, the people who do such amazing work, both at human events and over there at Post, uh, to become one big, well, we need a bell for this, apparatus now. You guys want to give us a little bit of insight uh, just on how that went down and, and what to look forward to maybe now moving forward? I don't know. I better let Chris go first because he's our PR guy. And so I don't want to say something <laughs> wrong. Chris, say something and then I'll say ditto and then we'll be good. Perfect. Yeah, well, if, 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 if I don't give credit to our boss, Jeff Webb, yeah. uh, who owns human events and was the man behind the acquisition of Post Millennial and signs the checks, I would be uh, I would be gravely <laughs> mistaken for not mentioning him. But honestly, uh, Jeff Webb is, you know, he you know, built a company from his uh, apartment in college into a multi-billion dollar global industry. 
He's out of that now, getting involved in conservative politics and has really brought that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and that attitude to things. And this this understanding of if you're really going to build something that is going to be effective and is going to be able to, uh, you know, make change, uh, then it's going to have to require uh, engaging people all across the where they are. And look, Human Events is one of the, you know, the oldest uh, public, you know, conservative publications in the country, been around since 1944, was the original anti-communist publication when it was founded. Uh, and post-millennial is such a great, like, uh, pairing with human events because post-millennial is obviously much, much younger. It skews younger. Uh, you know, it, it reaches out to that that younger demographic that is going to be so critical. If we're ever really going to save this country, we have to change the hearts and minds of the next generation. So I, I think this is like the perfect marriage. And even though it makes me feel like the uh, like the grandpa being the uh, the human <laughs> events guy to the, the post-millennial, uh, it is really, I think we're building something amazing. And I'm so excited to be a part of it. Yeah, it looks like it's going to yeah, be quite yeah. an endeavor. Brent, what do yeah, you what do you think? Ditto to what Chris said. <laughs> I, uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, look, Jeff uh, Webb is the guy that invented the sport of cheerleading, right? Yeah. So you don't you don't invent the sport of cheerleading by being doom and gloom like I am. Uh, <laughs> you do it because you've got a a really positive attitude. You know how to people make people come together um and uh celebrate and have some fun and i think we'll celebrate and we'll have some fun we've got a pretty impressive stable uh we have celine ryan sissio joining us on monday as the managing editor of human events i had that great joy of being able to hire my own replacement <laughs> and so uh celine who works well with the post-millennial folks uh will take on that role so we'll have some great chemistry platform to platform. Uh, we're only a couple of weeks into this acquisition, yeah. so it's going to get better and better. And uh, I think we're set up really well uh, to be one of the you know big players in this space. We're not competing with anybody. We're not competing with Breitbart or the Daily Wire or anybody else. Uh, we're going to do our thing uh, the way we want to do it. And hopefully if we do it right, we'll draw people to us. So we have no competition at all, zero. Uh, we have our own platforms and we're going to do the best we can with them. And hopefully that's enough uh, and people will find it of interest. And by the way, I, I would be remiss to say that uh, I, I've been thrilled to see how many people have finally abandoned the uh, the government's uh, talking points when it comes to uh, the China flu and the vaccine and everything else. But I will say that human events was one of the the publications that was out there fighting on this issue from the very beginning. Day one. You know, having people like the amazing, you know, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, yeah. uh, in human events, interviewing him, risking getting deplatformed to tell the truth. And so, like, you know, kudos to uh human events, kudos to Jeff Webb for having the the the, the willingness to to have folks who are speaking the truth uh on our outlet and uh Glad to say that we were right early on and glad to see so many other people who are uh, finally joining us. 
No, it does. Uh, competition wise, like you said, the only people you guys should be competing against is yourself because the product you put out is pretty amazing. And then when you're talking about the limits, obviously it's going to be the sky with some of the writers, the producers, the podcasters that you have coming over uh, from the other organization and joining you guys. In addition to it's a pretty decent, better than average setup you guys got going on in human events right now. So we got Chris Barron, so it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> and here he is winning, winning, which is what I want to say. Listen, I, I didn't know what the expectations were today. I knew we were going to talk. We were going to have some good conversations. This was actually amazing. And we're going to have to invite you guys back uh, at some point in the future. We, we would be sure inclined and love to have you. Absolutely. No, we're back in time. You'd come back, Chris. Would you? So I do the way it works. Just to give your readers, or, or excuse me, listeners, readers. Goodness, you can tell I'm a writer. Give your listeners a little inside baseball. Is that Chris tells me what I'm going to do, and then I do it. <laughs> nice. So you got a really good division of labor. It works pretty well, right? So Chris, you let me know what I'm doing. That <laughs> sounds good. I'm happy to come back anytime. This was great. We appreciate that. Where can our listenership find you guys across social medias or websites, whatever? Uh, people can Chris. find me uh, at Chris R. Barron on uh, Twitter, at Chris R. Barron on Gitter, uh, at Chris Barron on Truth Social. Uh, and on June 2nd, you can uh, tune in to uh, Fox News Channel uh, and catch me on Gutfeld. Nice. I'm going to be looking forward to that one. Oh, real quick, but Chris, before we I kick it over to Brent, who you got in the Stanley Cup playoffs? Uh, I'm rooting for Edmonton. I'm, I'm a Pens fan, so of course I like uh, I want hockey to be dead to me right now after the Pens blew that <laughs> three games to one lead. Uh, I'm rooting for Edmonton just because of the generational talent. Uh, it's probably going to be Colorado, which is fine. They're an amazing team, but I'd love to see it be Edmonton. I'd, I'd love to see Connor McDavid uh, win a Stanley Cup. Man, I hate to say this, but uh, let's go Rangers. They've been my team since I was. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> the dagger. Anyways, anyways, Brent, Brent, where can we find you? What's your website? You can you can find me at humanevents.com, and you can find me in the gym here in Northbrook most afternoons. But uh, that's about it. I'm not on any social media platform. And uh, in terms of the Stanley Cup playoffs, I assume that um, – when uh, Edmonton is playing, Gretzky's not on the team anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coffee, Curry, uh, all the, they're gone, right? Yeah, Those guys, yeah. Marty yeah. McSorley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I think I missed a few years. Just a few. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> so, Hey, I, I grew up a, a big Montreal Canadians fan. Guy Lafleur was my hero. Nice. Passed away a couple of weeks ago. That was a, that was a dark, dark day for me. Lots of, uh, Great memories watching hockey on the Canadian border where I grew up uh, when I was a kid. And that's when hockey was real. That's when the players didn't all wear helmets. Yep. And for those of you too young to remember that, I can assure you it's a very, very different game. It's just a whole different game. Yeah. yeah well, as someone who plays hockey, um, I, I can assure you that I wear a helmet every time. And <laughs> I can't imagine being on the ice without one. It was definitely- well, you should wear a helmet and a face shield and a big bubble because you're so pretty. Anything <laughs> happened to you? So, uh, yeah, I would still go without a helmet and hope I fell. So it's a whole different. Well, I was a goalie, so I wore everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh boy. Yeah. But so I, well, like, I, I never get. I never uh, like to life. I've never understood goalies. Like, if you throw something at me, my instinct is going to be to move. I would never be able to change that instinct. I'd be the world's worst goalie. I'd be like every puck that was fired at me. I'd be the other side of the net. I'd be like, I can't help myself. It's just na- nature tells me I got to move away from that. 
<laughs> yeah, so we, we won't let you play uh, Ghoulie, as we call them, where I grew up. Oh, nice. there you go. <laughs> Guys, like I said, we're going to have to do this again real soon, and we appreciate you taking time out of both of your busy schedules to come down. This is the uh, managing editor of Human Events, Brent Hamachek, and the senior contributor there, Mr. Chris Barron, soon to be a guest on Mr. Uh, Gutfeld's show. Nice. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thanks, Thanks for y'all. having us. Great way to start the week. A little bit different vibe to the show today. Not as much news with news clips, but I think all the stuff we covered with Chris Barron and Brent Hamachek, we kind of encompassed everything that's going on right now, from the Georgia elections to the southwest border, uh, foreign policy, and more. What do you think, Noah? This guy's got some comprehensive knowledge. I, I, I like the fact that they're like opposite sides of a coin. Like yeah. You've got Chris, who's Mr. America. He comes out to the Hulk Hogan theme song, and Brent Hamachek literally is like the Undertaker's keeper. Eeyore. Or Eeyore. I like it. Uh, what else I like is uh, listening to the Steak for Breakfast podcast across every major downloadable podcasting platform. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podaddict, Podbean, Google Podcast, FM Player, iHeartRadio, and on Roku TV via the Patriot Podcast Network. Subscribe to the show and rate it. Don't forget to leave a review. Download, listen, like, follow, and share Steak for Breakfast content. Show creds go to our amazing guest today, Danny Tarkanian, who's running an America First campaign in Nevada, too. In addition to that, Team Human Events, Chris Barron and Brent Hamachek. It was great to have them and some of our internet friends. Cagbro88, Mr. Garbaggio, The Patriotic Babe Accounts, Kyle Becker of Kyle Becker News, Christina Bob of Save America, and Tom Pappert, the editor-in-chief of Valiant News Live. Friends, don't forget to go out and uh, support our partners, because when you do that, all you do is help make small American businesses great again. Mike Lindell, Pillow King, Apparatus, Steve Bannon, big, big savings when you enter promo code STAKE at checkout. MyPillow.com forward slash STAKE is the website. You can talk to a qualified pillow representative via the telephone, 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear and all things related can be found at Odyssey. They have actually uh, are working on some podcasting equipment, but they have some pretty amazing speakers as well, like small ones that you think obscure, that amazing sound quality. Check it out on odyssey.com. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Stay Ready Gear Holsters. Who wouldn't want Pepe Clarence Thomas face Ooh! on a Kydex Conceal carry holster? What about Clarence Thomas laughing? Well, apparently we're going to have a button for that soon, so we'll check that out and see what happens. StayReadyGear.com is the website. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Man rubs. Don't mistreat your meat. Rule number one of steak for breakfast. You buy it. You shake it, you sprinkle it, rub it, throw it in the slow cooker or the smoker, a little barbecue sauce, you toss it in your mouth, num, num, num. Manrubs.com is the website. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Mike down at West Coast Survival Arms has a simple equation for all of your gun-related needs, firearms, parts, accessories, and ammo. Newly redesigned, easy-to-use website is westcoastsurvivalarms.com. He's on Facebook Messenger. You can talk to him via the telephone as well. 619-870-6992. 619-870-6992. Mediocre Medic for all our first responders. You're going to love everything they got going on down there. I guarantee you love their Instagram a little bit more. Damn! Find them on MediocreMedic.com and like I previously mentioned, their Instagram as well. And last, but certainly not least, the gold standard of tactical flair, home of the zero fuck stuck. Don't know? Go ask Mark Joe Friday. Find them at Dumpbox US. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Upcoming shows... We're going to come back on Friday with a straight banger. Raheem Kassam is going to do an amazing segment with us. It's going to be long. It's going to be hard. He's going to say the word fucked up a bunch of times, I bet, too. Ooh. 
And then if that wasn't enough, we're going to have Cash Patel on as well. It's going to be a great show. We'll come back on June 3rd. We'll have John Gibbs, Trump endorser running in Michigan 3, Kelly Cooper running Arizona 4, both coming back to join us. Carrie Lake will be here on the 10th of June. And Monica De La Cruz, who's running in Texas 17, she'll be sitting down with us on July 8th. Friends of the Week, let's see what we got going on here. The Real Smokeahontas, Grand Old Memes, Right Wing Savages 3.0, That Southern Dude, Midnight Mitch, Thank Elvis was in with a bunch this week. Dumbass Photoshop, Silent Meme Jordy, Snack Thickelson, No Period in Between the Words Now, Hispanics for DeSantis, and Baby Cakes 2.0. Guys, things to remember between now and next week. Number one, do your own research. It's consequently important to everything that encompasses politics. If you want to know more about the narratives that we tell you about, if you want to know more about the audio clips that you hear these pundits talk about, if you want to learn a little bit more about the people who we have on for interviews, go and do your own research. Number two, start a podcast. It's not weird. Everybody's doing it. Apparently, we're getting better at it. We'll find out next week. And last but certainly not least, let's see what happens. This has been episode 137 of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. And we'll be back on Friday with Raheem Kassam and Cash Patel. On behalf of the pod team, I'm Roan. Noah. Later. Thanks for listening and take care. Now, so far, we have what appears to me to be a series of victimless crimes. What about the toe? Forget about the fucking toe. Excuse me, sir. Could you please keep your voices down? This is a family restaurant. Oh, please, dear. For your information, the Supreme Court has roundly rejected on, prior restraint. This is not a First Amendment thing, Sir, man. If you don't calm down, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Lady, I got buddies who died face down in the muck so that you and I can enjoy this family restaurant. All right, I'm out of here. Hey, dude, don't go away, man. Come on, this affects all of us, man. Our basic freedoms. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.